The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed Podcast, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste careen around a corner and run into one another in a vicious melee of violence. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I don't have a cool nickname, but uh, my co-host does. Uh, yeah, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs, and uh, I've just received word uh, that the explosion sound effect was running a little late, hmm. uh, so uh, it'll be here later in the program. Ah, great. Kind of randomly. Yeah. The Hulk arrives at a blind date. Really? You don't look like your picture. The bus was late. It's uh, an old joke. Uh, welcome to the Critically Acclaimed Podcast. This is our uh, our film review podcast where we review new movies, and we have a lot of new movies to review this week. Yeah. So, uh, What are we reviewing this week, William? Kind of this week, we're reviewing the new film's host, Black is King, The Fight, Summerland, and The Secret, Dare to Dream. Also, on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, because our patrons demanded it, uh, we are catching up on yet another movie that one or both of us haven't seen. Uh, It is currently available on the HBO Max streaming service. It is the Veronica Lake Frederick March comedy, I Married a Witch, which inspired the sitcom Bewitched. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Your grandparents used to watch that show. Yeah, I was about to say, inspired the show Bewitched, you mean that Will Ferrell movie? People people of this generation, I don't think, know about Bewitched. It's funny, because it wasn't of our generation either, but it was in reruns, and that was a yeah, thing well, once. Well, you and I are of that weird, like, middle generation. I guess you, you consider yourself a millennial. Um, eh, I'm on the cusp. Yeah, no, I'm on I, the cusp. I'm halfway I, between I, Gen Y and millennial. Yeah, I, I always said Gen Y growing up, and then somebody told me when I was, like, in my late 30s that Gen Y was never a thing. It's like, Really? You talk about this like every five Uh, bucks. Absolutely, I do. It bugs me. Bugs me. We have a different experience. Can you say it bugs me like that again? Bugs me. (laughs) That's your new catchphrase. Get a a t shirt with that on it. It bugs me. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to find Liam Lynch and record a single. Um, but uh, yeah, we we were weaned on the the entertainment of a previous generation. Yeah. So you know, we're of the age to be raised on crap like HR Puff and stuff. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't made for us, but it's what we were raised with. Yeah, it was still widely available. There wasn't like this constant influx of content, mm. as we say with uh, uh, air quotes. And so yeah, we were yeah mm. we were incidentally exposed to art mm. from previous generations. Whereas so, I so think we, nowadays yeah. you have to seek it out, and exactly. so a lot of people just are just sort of less aware, and that's not mm. necessarily. You know the worst thing in the world, but it does mean we have to do our due diligence and remind people that Bewitched was a thing, and also I Married a Witch was a thing. Bewitched was a thing. Was it a great thing? That's debatable. Yeah, we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. In any case, uh, so yeah, we're going to be reviewing all those movies. But before we get started, sadly, we do have to do yet another uh, obituary. We lost another legend in the film industry. 
this last week, we lost the wonderful character actor and also diabetes spokesman. And people made a lot of fun of him for that, but seriously, good for him. Uh, Wilfred Brimley passed away. Yeah, I don't think they made fun of him for the diabetes commercials. I've heard a lot of people like you know, you know, sort of mocking the way he said it or whatever. And like, listen, whatever. He's a public figure. I'm sure he could take a few jests at his expense. But like, he was a he was a diabetes spokesperson. People don't talk about diabetes enough, or they didn't anyway. And so it was good to have that out there. You know, and uh, and both got have a cause. Wilfred Brimley passed away at the age of 85, and not of diabetes. True. So. He spread the word and he lived by it and he he died at a healthy old age. Yeah, uh, uh, he uh, Wilfred Brimley lived at a healthy old. age. He lived at a healthy old age. One of those uh, actors who was never young in a movie. Yeah, the, I remember when uh, Tom Cruise made Mission Impossible five or six, and uh, the the joke was, and Tom Cruise was as old as Wilfred Brimley was in Cocoon, and the Cocoon is about elderly people. Yeah, who uh, find alien spores that make them horny again. Yeah, uh, the whole that's gag the, plot of the movie. The whole gag in Cocoon is we have all of these aging actors who are like fifty and older they're so old you guys and now they're gonna act young and i'm like yeah nowadays like stallone's still making action movies like it's (laughs) weird right the whole idea of the action star like we have people like robert downey jr and Charlize theron and liam neeson like people who are not 21 anymore yeah still doing these action pictures and they're far more convincing at it than oh, I think a 21-year-old would be. I, I buy Charlie's Theron for goodness sake. I buy yeah. Charlie's Theron killing somebody more than I buy actual serial killers I've seen on the news. I'm like, Charlie's Theron could do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh Wilford Brimley he was uh just as cantankerous in real life as he appeared on screen. I did not. He was that. one of those people who uh was very bold, forthright and a little bit cranky, played those kinds of roles. And I've seen him in interviews, and he lived way out in the middle of Wyoming. He lived out on a ranch, and he never wanted to talk to people. He was mm. kind of a, just a loner and a misanthrope. He didn't want to put up with anybody's crap, and he always played roles of characters who didn't want to put up with anybody's crap. He was well cast. Yeah, yeah. A really wonderful character actor. I wouldn't call him versatile, but... We don't need versatile when we have Wilford Brimley. <laughs> you put Wilford Brimley in anything, and he will be Wilford Brimley. Yeah. And he will be amazing. And he'll be amazing Wilford Brimley. Now, uh, I know one of his more celebrated roles was in the film The China Syndrome, a film I haven't seen. I haven't seen it in a long yeah. time, uh, but that was one of his first big breakout roles. I think it might have been his first feature film. Oh, maybe so. Apparently, he had he's credited on IMDb, True Grit, Minor Role, Uncredited. Uh, is that an extra? What is that? I don't know, IMDb. It's a minor role uncredited. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he very quickly became like this go-to character actor. He would show up in films like Brubaker, Absence of mm. Malice, Tender Mercies. What was the first time you fully you fully remember seeing Wilford Brimley in a role? Um, I, It might have been Cocoon. I remember okay. seeing Cocoon when I was a kid. That came out in like the mid-80s. Like 85, 85. Like right in the middle. Um, he was also in the sequel, Cocoon the Return, which nobody talks about. No, everyone's um, sort think, of just like, what were we thinking on that? I think the first time I really noticed him was in uh, the, uh, was in the Firm. Oh, uh, yeah. Which was a huge hit in 93. It's one of those huge hits that people don't really discuss so much anymore. It, it's it's shot off. Like, The Firm, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman. Was it Gene mm. Triplehorn in that movie? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, this was a huge blockbuster. And it's a smart movie, and it's really good. Like it's, I rewatched oh, really it recently, good, yeah. it holds up really well. Uh, and Wilford Brimley plays one of the uh, board of directors or partners at this law firm that is working to like protect the mob, and so all of the lawyers need to basically be in on a conspiracy. And Tom Cruise finds himself embroiled in that conspiracy. 
it was a huge hit and it was so successful and it was nominated for some Oscars. Uh, it ended up, excuse me, uh, it ended up like spawning like an entire wave of John Grisham legal thrillers and mm. imitation legal thrillers, many of which were quite good. It was actually an mm. interesting time. Like it was a weird time when like, hey, what are the big summer movies? Oh, A Time to Kill is coming out. That's a big summer movie in the nineties. It is. <laughs> It's such a magical time where you could just be blindsided by anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he was really, really great in that one. I remember him, and he's absolutely amazing in a movie that we talk about constantly, anyway. Mm. But John Carpenter is the thing. Um, don't we don't even need to mention it really? I just, well, I but, yeah. Credit where credit is due. Mm. I think uh, a lot of the people, the characters in John Carpenter's The Thing, are kind of stoic or kind of panicky, and they're all really manly. I think Wilford Brimley is the one who he's going through his own narrative. Mm. He's got his entire entirely his own storyline, and you can kind of really only tell what he's going through by looking at the details of his performance and what's going on around him when you realize that he was ahead of everybody in terms of mm. figuring out that the space alien that's taken over our bodies can't leave Antarctica. We have to destroy ourselves. Um, it's a really sad performance, but he's so gung-ho in it. He, he's gung-ho. It's sad. He goes really over the ledge and he has a, a really grim moment. That's actually one of the few moments of levity in that movie. Oh, I know it's weird, Cause, right? Cause they, he goes a little wild. He starts breaking the radio equipment. And so they, they think he's gone crazy and they lock him up in a shed outside of like the main Arctic station. So he's out in this tiny little, essentially like one bedroom apartment out in the middle of like far away. Yeah. And they go out to talk <laughs> to him and he could sort of like, he's already cracked a little bit. So he yells at them. And then one time they go out to see him and uh, he's just sort of slumped on his seat, and he looks very kind of humble, and he, he just looks up at the little window and says, I'd like to come back inside now. But John Carpenter yeah, well, really he, brilliantly put a little tiny hangman's noose in the, right in the foreground. Yeah, so he's like, just like, I'm, I'm fine now, I'd like to come home. And Kurt Russell's like looking at that noose, and he's like, no, I think you're good here. <laughs> but it's not a noose for him to hang himself, it's just a little noose, it's like a string. No, I think it's just in the background, I don't yeah. think it's in the foreground, I think it's in the background. Dude. Oh, yeah. We we read that theme differently, but um, that he's great in that movie. Uh, a lot of people have been posting like stills or gifs of him being an action superstar and hard target, like, <laughs> riding on a horse with like double like dual wielding shotguns while shit blows up behind him. That's fun. I think people have not been talking enough about the fact that Wilford Brimley was a Star Wars star. That's right, it was in the Battle for Endor. Yeah, Star Wars, uh, after the Star Wars trilogy ended in the 1980s, we had two TV movies that were released theatrically over overseas. Mm. Uh, we had uh, Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor, both starring the Ewoks. Caravan of Courage sucks. I'm going to say it. <laughs> I, 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 I fight tooth and nail for these movies to be included in the Star Wars conversation. It's not because they're both good. It's because they're both real movies that just don't happen to be canon anymore. If you say that, like, the Ewok movies don't count, that's like saying that every James Bond movie before Daniel Craig doesn't count because they're not canon anymore. It's still Star Wars. Mm. Caravan of Courage, it's, it's slow. It, it's The plot doesn't work. Some good visual effects, but it's not very good. Battle for Endor is pretty good. Battle I, for Endor is pretty fun. As a kid's like, action-adventure fantasy, yeah. it's fine. I think they're both watchable. Yeah. The I ba- prefer battle, Endor. The Battle for Endor is the one with, like... It's just like straight up fantasy witches and wizards and yeah. like castles and whatever. Yeah, there there are these like people like transforming into stuff and um <laughs> all but one of the characters from the first movie die in the opening scene really badly. Like and, it's you know really what? intense. Every sequel 
should open that way. Yeah, it's like it's the uh, uh, I think I, I'm trying to think of any other sequels that killed. And I'm not just like one or two people mm. like Alien Three. Although I guess I'll let uh, that slide because yeah. that was all the survivors. But like, how many sequels began with slaughtering almost all of the original cast? I can think of only three off the top of my head. Right. Please let me know if you can think of any more. Ewoks Battle for Endor, Alien Three, and um, uh, GI Joe Retaliation. Okay. Killed basically everybody except uh, Snake Eyes. Like that's it. Mm. Everyone else who was in the previous movie gone. I was really angry at the uh, the Mission Impossible movie for that. Mm. It's like Mission Impossible. Here's our big team, and they're all experts and stuff. And we're gonna go out on our first mission and, and find some stuff. Out. And they're recognizable and they're, actors: Kristen Scott yeah. Thomas, Emilio Estevez, John Voight. Like we know these people. Like, like spent some time establishing chemistry, and I understand they're trying to up the stakes. But that entire team is just slaughtered immediately. <laughs> it's like, no, I want to see the team. <laughs> Well, they built a new Tom, team. Tom Cruise is... Uh, yeah, they have to spend the rest of the movie building the team again. <laughs> it's like, no, you had one. Just do that. I agree. I think in Mission Impossible it should be a team story. But in any case, if you've never seen Battle for Endor because it's been, like, sort of spotly available, uh, very recently it was on Amazon. You could, like, rent it hmm. uh, on the Amazon video service. It doesn't seem to be there now. If you uh, live in L.A., it's at Cinephile Video. Yeah. And Cinephile is still doing uh, rentals during the pandemic. You, you can still get it mm. if you actively seek it out. And I hope that the reason it's not on Amazon is because Disney is intending to put them out. Because canon or not, they're not that bad. Like, Caravan of Courage is kind of slow and dumb and I don't like it. Mm. But it's there are worse Star Wars movies. <laughs> Some of them were made by George Lucas. Like, I would actually put them ahead of a couple of them. Well... Yeah. The, the prequels, it's a, it's remember, a, remember, the prequels suck. That's true. I'm trying to think, you probably, like, the bottom of the list, the bottom is still Holiday Special, and then probably, like, Attack of the Clones, and then, like, then Caravan of Courage. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where it goes. But Wilford Brimley plays a guy who's been, like, marooned on the forest moon of Endor, and, like, this little girl whose family has just been brutally murdered, and, like, one surviving Ewok come to him for help, and he has to kill a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. He ends up in, like, a big sword fight in the woods against a giant monster. He's great. I believe him. He's really good at it. I, I hate his hat, but otherwise he's good. His hat's kind of yeah. stupid. But, uh, in any case, better than you've probably mm. heard. Um, wasn't he? Was he in an adaptation of Tuck Everlasting, or am I think mixing him up? Tuck Everlasting. Oh, with that '90s one. Yeah, wasn't he in Tuck Everlasting? No, I don't think he was. Who was in Tuck Everlasting? Oh, was it William Hurt. <laughs> I get confused him with William Hurt. Dude, William Hurt. It's like if you. It's like if uh, they were like a Stretch Armstrong. Like William Hurt's like got like a foot on Wilford Brimley. <laughs> Just like, stretch out William, Wilford yeah, Brimley and if get you, William Hurt. If you if you shot William uh, uh, William Hurt mm. in anamorphic and didn't like and to put it in the right it, lens, <laughs> yeah, you would you would get Wilford Brimley. He'd mm. be a great be a great gimmick. Um, anyway, uh, he, he was in a, a movie called In and Out, which I haven't seen since the '90s and probably has aged terribly mm. uh it's a, a comedy about kevin klein he's about to marry uh his beloved when uh joan cusack oscar nominated that's right and when a, an, an old student of his he's, he plays a teacher an old student of his is winning an academy award and outs him as gay at, during his acceptance speech yeah he, he wins he wins an academy award for playing a gay character mm. and he thanks his teacher and kevin Klein's like oh that's so nice and he's like yeah and he was gay and everyone's like oh how progressive which is, which and is, kevin klein is very surprised because he didn't realize he was gay yeah and and the the arc of the movie is is he or is he not actually gay and is he coming to terms with it or is he yeah. in denial and, and there's uh, a bit of a ticking clock because he's supposed to get married tomorrow and and Joan Cusack is amazing in that movie do you, know, so do you know how many times I've had to watch Funny Lady it was a yeah. sequel she was under contract <laughs> 
There's funny bits in that movie. I've heard mixed things about how well it holds up, but I yeah. too have not revisited that one in a very long time. Yeah, but, but Wilford Brimley but plays Wilford his father. Plays his dad, and yeah, uh, there's sweet in it. There, yeah, there's a wonderful scene near the end where. Uh, uh, some people have to come out in order to defend him. Mm-hmm. Like there's a gay, there is a gay student in town. And he comes out. And he just stands up and says, "I'm gay." And it's like, "Well, you're just one of his students. You know, you're mm-hmm. who are you?" And then Wilford Bremley stands up and says, "Well, I'm his father, and I'm gay." It's really it's, sweet. It's, Debbie it's, Reynolds plays his mom, right? Plays his mom, and, and she's the one who's like she's she kind of leans into Wilford Brimley and says, "And I am a lesbian." Yeah, it's it's kind of sweet. It's kind of there's uh, my favorite again doesn't sound like it ages very well. No, there's parts of it that don't. But Debbie Reynolds is really funny because she's got this bit where she's like, um, "I I'm fine with him being gay. I just don't understand why I wouldn't want to get ma- get this married." Hmm. <laughs> she just does that, that that baffles her. She's so behind. Um, in any case, Wilford Brimley, you will be missed. There was really no one like you. Mm-hmm. And um, what a what a wonderful actor! And I'm sure people are going to keep rediscovering some of his more memorable movies. And I hope mm-hmm. you discover some of his less well known movies too, because yeah, you know he, he was he like was a more lot of like than, little genre crap here yeah, and there. Yeah, he was he was more than the thing. He was yeah. more than Hard Target. He worked constantly, and yeah, all due respect, Wilford Brimley, you were a badass. You were extremely talented. You had my respect, and you will be missed. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Let's review some new movies. All right. Before this weekend, if you had asked me what the biggest new movie of the week was, I would have had a different answer. But after Host came out, it's mm. kind of all anyone's talking about on like film Twitter, for lack of a better word, <laughs> for lack of a better like uh-huh. criteria. Um, so let's talk about this movie. This movie is new. It's exclusive to the Shutter Network, and it was conceived, written, shot. Edited, went through post-production, and finally released since the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. And it takes place during the pandemic. And it's, I remember first hearing about that uh, and rolling my eyes going, oh, Christ. Here we go. Gimmick movies. They're not mm-hmm. going to have anything to say. They're not going to just... And then, uh, uh, it's actually quite good. It's really good. Yeah. I actually really love this movie. Okay. Uh, and I'm surprised... think you liked it more than I did. And I'm surprised because it, it actually, in terms of its technicals it hasn't done anything that's been done before yeah that hasn't been done before uh it's it's shot entirely on a computer screen as we're seeing a zoom call specifically on a zoom call and zoom uh when the pandemic broke out uh there were a lot of conspiracy like fun conspiracy theories floating around that it was orchestrated specifically by zoom (laughs) to get their stock i didn't know what zoom was until the yeah exactly now everybody's on these zoom calls yeah uh so the fact that they're using Zoom is significant because yeah. it's something that is very specific to the pandemic. Yep. And the plot is a bunch of friends get together for a Zoom call so they can hold an online seance. Yeah. Uh, and one of them was very into spirituality. She would have preferred to have done this in person, but now they're all mm. isolated and they can only talk to each other online or on so, the phone. Yeah, but have, like, so everybody in, the, in their own locations lights their own candle. They all like all, most of them are just sort of snickering about it. One of them is specifically into it. She actually has some motivation behind it. Uh, and as it turns out, the seance was successful and it haunts all of their locations mm-hmm. because they were just because they're not in the same room doesn't mean the, the evil spirit in question yeah. can't be in multiple places at once. Because if you think about it, like, oh, we're in a circle and we're summoning a spirit. Mm. Well, like, what? I'm not sure spirits actually care about geometry. The point is you are of one mind. Mm. You're all concentrating. You're all putting your energy mm. into it. And first off, credit where credit is due, 
Um, that's that's not the most novel thing in the world. I've seen that in other movies, but it is particularly pointed now. And the idea of you know the the demon that we have summoned through our mm. carelessness in this case uh, doesn't care about like where you live and stuff. Mm. It's pretty on the nose. It's really on the nose. Yeah, and that, it's, that it's, thing it's, will spread. You it, know, like a virus. It, it well also the. I think it's addressing more having to stay inside with your fear, mm. which is you know, what living with the pandemic has been like. You're yeah. locked inside. They can't go anywhere. You're afraid. You can't go anywhere. And there's a demon in there with you. And that's you being afraid. Uh, that's one of the great it, uh, yeah. uh, traps of the haunted house genre. Why uh, don't you leave? Yeah. And then the better haunted house stories come up with the reason. In Poltergeist, we can't leave. Our daughter disappeared in the house and mm. we have to find her. Or um, um, Insidious, we did leave. It followed us. One of the only funny gags in A Haunted House 2, mm. or maybe it was the first A Haunted House, oh, was gag. Uh, where something really creepy happens, and uh, the first thing uh, the dad thinks to do is like, nope, we're moving, we're moving out. And he gets mm. in the truck and he drives away. And then he drives back and says, I can't afford a new home, they're too expensive. And he yeah. just goes right back into the, the Haunted the House. The Conjuring so. had the same uh, uh, thing. There's one good gag in both of the Haunted House movies, and I couldn't tell you which one it's in, because they're pretty much the same film. Uh, oh, but the, the other is the the riff on I think it was Paranormal Activity four. Well, there's a there's a whole bunch of yeah. Paranormal Activity riffs, but there's one where like they finally like say like, listen, we can't do anything about this ghost. We're not exorcists, so we're just going to ignore it. Mm. And it's just them trying to have breakfast while the ghost is trying to get their attention. It's like <laughs> totally trashing their kitchen, and they're just like, mm. yeah, pass the pass the sugar. Like it's. Yeah. It's a joke. It's like, like it's he, reach, yeah, he reaches for the sugar and it flies off the counter and breaks. Oh, I'm cutting down. Yeah, like <laughs> totally calm. Easily the yeah. only like truly yeah, so good joke in either of those films. There are uh, a few uh, little flourishes and host that I really appreciated. Uh, the idea that you can have a Zoom call with your own sort of fabricated background, mm -hmm. uh, like you can pretend you're on a beach. It's just sort of mm -hmm. a fun little aesthetic gimmick. And My backgrounds can... are all from movies. Like I've got one where oh, yeah. uh, like uh, Patrick Bateman and American Psycho is behind me in a slicker with an axe. <laughs> that's kind of cute. I like that's my favorite. And, I love and you that can one. actually replace that with uh, whatever picture you like, or even a short video. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good scare moment where that involves really that fake background. There's a really uh, fun. Involving um, those sort of Snapchat filters for your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that one before. That was actually neat. I was like, "Ooh, good job, host." Yeah. So yeah, a, a, a thinking it through. A Snapchat filter on a ghost face is really great. Uh, way better than in Blumhouse's Truth or Dare, where they oh, bring yeah. it up, where they bring it up in dialogue. It's like some kind of fucked up Snapchat filter. <laughs> Yeah, how, how terrifying. I can't believe you just said that out loud, dude. Like, if you don't say it out loud, it's scary. If you do say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous all of a sudden. By the way, uh, Blumhouse's Truth or Dare is revoltingly bad. Yeah, not even really it's one that... one of their worst movies. And not even that entertainingly. But, like, you no. can watch it. Like, it's not, like, the, the absolute, it's just, it's like, like, terrible. But it's really dumb. It's a stupid idea. It's really stupid. Um, but Host is not stupid. Host is... It's very efficient. This movie... Is less than 60 minutes long. It's, yeah, it's a 55-minute feature. Which you might think, is that a short? It's actually not. A the cutoff I think, is... I think by Academy Standards, 40 minutes is yeah, a short. Yeah, 40 minutes or less, which is why a lot of like documentaries, when they're like entered into the Academy mm -hmm. Awards, are like 39 minutes and some change. Because if it's 41 minutes, technically qualifies as a feature. You can say that that's arbitrary, and you would be right. Mm -hmm. But that is the line that we have agreed to like across like the studio system. This is a very short feature... 
but it's a very good feature. Yeah, it is. A, it, it it and I have issues with it. And I'll talk about that in a second. But mm-hmm. overall, I really do like this movie a lot. The efficiency of it is one of the best things about it. It's simultaneously like evokes this kind of old school universal horror era where we just get in, show you the spooky stuff, mm-hmm. and get out. Yeah, which I really appreciate. It was even shorter than some of those mummy sequels. Yeah, so. like those are like seventy-one minutes long. Like this, and get it all done in in one go. Well, simultaneously being completely of the moment. Mm. Um, so it's got a classical feel to it while still being very, feeling very contemporary. Um, some of the the actual like special effects gags that they do, and I, we won't spoil them all for mm. you. Um, I was actually watching them like, how did they film that in the pandemic? There's a couple of them where I'm just like, that must have been tricky. Well, there, there's uh, some clever uses of CGI. And yeah. Somebody's just doing some special effects on a home computer at home. It looks a little cheap, but that doesn't make it any less creepy. Well, it's, it, it's plausible, yeah. though. And it's actually one of the few movies where, like, seeing this on the big screen would be less effective than, like, watching it in your bedroom with the lights off on your laptop. Because it's yeah. on your laptop. It's where it's supposed mm. to be. Yeah, yeah And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And this, this has been done before. The Unfriended movies both did this. The first one's okay. Mm-hmm. Um... I actually was weird. I reviewed the first Unfriended out of South by Southwest, mm. and I liked it quite a bit. I think it's actually like, I mean, it's it's kind of corny. It all it's like this. It all takes place. I think it was on a Skype call on that one, but um, and uh, everyone's haunted by the ghost of someone that they cyberbullied, and it's all a pretty, you know, in your face but effective metaphor for the evils of cyberbullying. I liked it at the time. And then I found out that when it finally came out in theaters, which was only like a month later, mm-hmm. they changed the ending. And I didn't know it. I mean, the ending, as like the one that got into theaters, is not the good ending. Oh, so I, here I am on record on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, fuck it. <laughs> Would have at least brought it down my score. Um, so it has been done. I think Searching is still the film that has done it the best. Yeah. So it's not a scary movie, but it is a great thriller. Starring John Cho as a father whose daughter goes missing, and as he is trying to investigate like who she knew, where she's been, he starts going through like her search histories, her laptop, all of her files, and realizes he didn't really know his daughter at all. Mm. John Cho is amazing in that movie. John Cho is amazing in every movie. That's true, but I think this might be his best showcase. Like John Cho should have been nominated for Best Actor, the movie should have been nominated for Best Screenplay, and it should have been nominated for Best Editing. Yeah. I'm just gonna throw that out there that it was nominated for none of those as a travesty. Um, so I think that's the movie that did it the best. But Host is very effective. It's pretty intense. It fe- The one thing about it for me that I just feel like maybe it's a little underdeveloped. In that there's a few like themes that it sort of brushes up against and doesn't explore very well. Hmm. Um, what happens over the course of the film is you know they're going to do the seance. And of course the seance goes very, very wrong. And it goes very, very wrong without going into detail. Because someone wasn't taking the danger seriously. Right. Okay, fair. That's a horror movie trope, and it also connects to what we're doing right now. Who is the person who brought this virus into our lives? The one person who didn't wear a mask, you know, that kind of thing. But then later on, the person who didn't take it seriously, there's a bit where they have to go outside their apartment, and even though they're scared as shit, they put on their mask. And Mm. I'm like, okay, it feels like that's the person who wouldn't. Right? Mm, Doesn't it feel like that? That sort of the metaphor is a little unclean. Uh, well, if that's the metaphor you're applying to the movie, then I, yes. I mean, listen, most horror movies, mm. and this is not an exaggeration, but it's mm. not a tried and truism either. But okay, maybe most. A lot of horror movies are about some sort of sin that is committed and the repercussions thereof. Mm-hmm. And the repercussions are usually way worse than the sin, but sometimes they're they're valid and. 
So what'll happen is like in the hitcher, the guy picks up a hitchhiker. I think the first line of dialogue in the movie is my mom told me to never do this. And then he's tortured throughout the entire movie because he picked up the wrong hitchhiker. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is about uh, parents who had who went for vigilante justice and how that sort of taints a whole generation of their kids because of their guilt yeah. and their and their complicity in a in a crime justified or otherwise. Um, and Halloween is about what happens when psychology fails. Mm. You know, there's there's all of these uh, films that are about some sort of repercussion for a wrong being done, and if you apply that simple campfire logic. To host, and I think it's not unreasonable to call this a campfire tale. It's very efficient. It's very striking. Mm. Um, this is a story about people who don't take danger seriously and get people hurt. And when you're applying this to the now, we're in the middle of a pandemic that's mm. set during the pandemic. It addresses the pandemic directly. I don't know what else I'm supposed to take from it. Well, you're assuming that the evil is is the virus. I'm saying the evil. I'm saying the evil is a metaphor for the virus. Yeah, I'm. I'm saying the evil is the metaphor for the fear that we're living in our apartments with. Okay. It's not about the virus in our apartments. It's about the thing that's in our apartments with us. I appreciate that, mm. but I just feel like if you're the kind of person who would who's trying who, to who would blithely ignore to, warnings, to brush, n- trying to brush off the fear and the anxiety you're feeling by by sort of putting on a brave face. And pretend that there's nothing wrong when really there's a lot of anxiety and fear in you. Uh-huh. And that's the thing that's welcoming greater bouts of panic later. But I don't think that's what happened, though. I think, I think the thing <laughs> that caused... But that's my interpretation of <laughs> no, it. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm, we're right. just having a conversation. I'm not right. trying to fight you. I'm just saying my interpretation was it's not that they're putting on a brave face. It's mm. they are mocking this thing that someone told them, no, we're going to be taking this seriously. And we all agreed to take this seriously. Mm. And by actively mocking that, not putting on a brave face, mocking it. Hmm. You invited the danger into into all of our lives by not taking it seriously. I just, for me, that's. But here's the deal: even though that's my critique of the film, hmm. it's my one critique of the film. Like, it's still a very good right. campfire tale of a, of a horror movie. Yeah, I like the, it a lot. It has those wonderful moments uh, that that I love in these found. I know the found footage thing is sort of done to death, uh, but hmm. they always have. It's been a while one, since we've had a problem. Each one seems to have at least one or two moments that uh, understands what's going on. There's like a single static shot. Mm-hmm. It's usually a little grainy yeah. of like a chair and you're just waiting for the chair to move. And you're staring <laughs> at the chair and then it moves and it's really scary. Like it moves right kind of right where you expect it to, but you're, you're fixated on that mm-hmm. chair. There's this big, long bout of silence in the, the theater where everybody's it's, waiting for the moment. And it scares and everybody jumps it's, and it's actually really it's cheap, but it works. It's one of the coolest things about the found footage genre because it's about so many people like filming themselves when they're doing something mundane. Mm-hmm. We get lulled into the mundanity of their life, and so when something scary does happen, it's more shocking than if we're in something that's a bit more like overtly quote unquote scary. Mm-hmm. Because then we're like sort of comfortable with scary things happen because you've sort of primed us for it. Yeah. But when something's been mundane for a few minutes, even though we know we're in a horror movie, something bad's gonna happen eventually, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly the moment, and it's scary. You're right. So like, there's a couple of really good, a couple of really good shocks in this. Um. Anyway, uh, host, it's on Shutter. Uh, you made a comment on Twitter that uh, even though you liked it more than I did, uh-huh. I still like it a lot. I am recommending it. Uh, I, I I can't dispute this. I think didn't you call it like one of like the defining movies of the year? It's it's the defining moment of 2020. This is what yeah. this year is about. 
that they're able to a the means by which they made it is uh, very 2020. This mm-hmm. is the the year of the lockdown, and this is the experience people are having in lockdown. Yeah. So, it, and it's, it's very specifically about the lockdown. It's it's a film that tells the story of its own making. Mm-hmm. I think more importantly than it being good, it's significant. This is the kind of movie that we're going to refer to when people are going to ask us, what was this age like? Mm-hmm. This nails it. Every little detail of it, yeah. uh, the way people communicate, and the way nobody's making eye contact because they're all looking at the screens and not yeah. the cameras. It's hard to it's hard to capture that in the moment. Yeah. yeah. It really, really is because people are usually like not present enough mm-hmm. to really focus on these details in the moment itself. When we think about the film's... You know, like whatever. Anyway, it just like, the, like you're even, right. It's really spot on. I, I think this um, heaven help me, but the Princess Bride home movie on Quibi, yeah, kind of defines this era in a weird sort of way. Um, I guess my point is, I'm I'm curious what like ten years from now, hmm. when I hope this is all behind us. What are people gonna tell? What movies are people gonna make about this? Hmm. And I think you're right. I think Princess Bride on Quibi, and I think Host are gonna be sort of the things we're gonna look back on and say. Well, how do we make that again? This, the, what do we do? This know? is what was going on at the time, and th- this was the they're tone. going. They're going to be seen as complete oddities. They are. Uh, oddities. Yeah, they're, they're going to be completely forgotten. People won't be talking oh, about I them. I don't know about that. I think there'll at least be a footnote. I think there'll at least be yeah, like, and then when the pandemic happened, yeah. here were the movies that were made about it during its time, and mm. we'll look back at that. I think maybe so. Maybe you so. know, we look back at like the movies that like tackled war while we were in the middle of the Vietnam War, for mm. example, and how those were totally different than the World War II movies. That were made during World War II. Fair. You know? So I think this is likely to be something that we discuss. I hope so. It's good. Yeah. Um, So in any case, if you have Shudder, check it out. If you don't have Shudder, free trial. (laughs) There is a free trial. It's totally worth it to see this. And there's other good stuff on Shudder, too. Um, Not everything they put out is a banger, but this is definitely one of them. Um, Meanwhile, over on Disney Plus... There is a new movie out. It is a visual concept album... Uh, directed by and featuring Beyonce Knowles. Uh, this is basically her take on The Lion King. Well, what it is, uh, Black is King is a film, a filmed version, like a, a feature-length music video mm-hmm. for the deluxe edition, like the expanded edition of her concept record that she devoted to the remake of the lion king yeah so we're like a long string away from the source material uh and yeah this was uh directed by beyonce uh it's all her music Mm -hmm. and uh not just her she actually has a whole slew of guest artists on this record oh yeah i mean like uh, Um, uh, jay-z is on here mm, Um, of course jay-z's on it but like under kids are in it too yeah uh, lapita nyong'o shows up mm -hmm. in here um it's um a lot of people actually. A lot I'm of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to try to find a list. Actually, I don't want to like forget like who is in this mm. thing because it's a lot. Uh, so the uh, the album was called The Lion King: colon, The Gift, mm. uh, and it features the music is featured by. I'm, I'm not sure how many people end up in the film, but um, we got music by DJ Khaled. We've got music by uh, Diplo. We've got music by um, Pharrell is in here. Yeah, yeah, Pharrell is in this thing. Um, it, it's Kind of a giant monster of an album. It's a really good album. I think that's fair yeah. to say. Like, it's a real. It's a. It's a great listen. Uh, okay. Um, uh, okay. I, 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 I like that. I don't know what your problem. Is. I. I. I'm 
okay, I'm going to lose everybody. I'm indifferent to Beyonce. Uh, okay. I, I don't, I don't hate her. I don't dis- dislike what she does, but except for that single lady song, I hate that song. I just realized but, uh, I was giving you a list of the producers on the album, not necessarily all of those people actually. But, but they, yeah, sang they, on a lot it, of them but, produced a, a lot of. But the like stuff. you got, but, yeah. you got Jay Z, you got Childish Gambino, you got Kendrick Lamar, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, yeah. Wizkid. Like, there's a lot. But, there's a lot uh, of people on there. It, it takes the story of the Lion King and sort of spins it off into this. Uh, rather wonderful black pride polemic. Uh, it starts with uh, Beyonce walking down a beach holding an infant, I think her own child, mm. or a stand-in for her own child, and uh, she's just sort of singing about how proud she is going to be to teach this child about their own African heritage. Yeah. And how proud she is of her own African heritage. And there's uh, you know, music from Mali and just all, all over the African continent, just a lot of artists from all over contributing. And there's, uh, you know, various myths from all of like ancient African cultures, all mm-hmm. being lots of different influences blended together yeah. into lots this, of different visual oh, yeah. influences on here. The costume design mm-hmm. is from everywhere. Yeah, it's, the, the production design is really astounding. It's like, actually. It's like the Met Gala and it's very Cirque du Soleil. It, it feels like Matthew Barney in certain sequences. I actually thought to myself, Oh, finally a Cray master. I enjoy <laughs> Uh, in terms of it linking to the Lion King, that's the weakest stuff. They mm. just play dialogue from the movie and it just sort of grinds everything to a halt where you remember, oh, yeah, this is cartoon film about lions. It's like, you remember that Queens of the, the, I think it was the first Queens of the Stone Age album where the whole concept of the album was you're like driving in the desert in the middle of the night and you're, you know, whipping from FM station, FM station. Mm. And you're catching little bits of like dialogue and then they play a different Queens of the Stone Age song. Mm. All of those FM stations, every single time you hear about, like, ah, welcome back to WKRD, the Kirtle. Like, I'm like, that's, nobody likes that part. <laughs> nobody is, like, the when they're listening to the album, it's like, ah, oh, I can't wait to get to all those dialogue yeah, interstitials. Yeah. Like, nobody cares about that stuff. And, uh, but I think here it does serve a purpose because this, I think this album and this movie is not just like, ah, oh, we're going to include some dialogue from the movie because we're a soundtrack. I think it's a reaction to it. You know, I think it's something about, like, here's The Lion King, here's this big, giant Disney movie Mm. that brought um, ideas of African culture into the homes of people in America who might otherwise not have sought it out. Mm. And let's be fair here. It's a movie made by Disney with music by Elton John that ripped off a Japanese cartoon. Like, it's not exactly, like, the most, like, pure artistic statement about... The yeah. cu- countries and cultures of Africa, and I think Beyonce and a lot, is trying and a lot to, of the cast of the original were white actors, very, so, very yeah. much so. And I think, and I think it's fair to say all of that. It's also fair to say the original Lion King is also good. But I think what Beyonce Knowles is doing in that album, and I think she's very much doing in this movie, is trying to say like, okay, here's what you evoked the Lion King. This is what parts of the Lion King that we watched and we were like, okay, all right, that's cool. All right, let me show you what you meant. <laughs> and I feel like that's what Black let is me King correct is. you. And that's how I feel. I feel like this is like a giant piece of film criticism, mm. you know? And it's just her going, okay, I like you, Lion King. I was in, I was in your remake. It's cool. It's cool. This is she, seriously what you meant. She, she barely did anything in that remake. But <laughs> she's, yeah. yeah, she sings a song and she's like, she, I think she plays Nala. And like, mm. Beyonce, I think she's incredibly talented. As an actor, I don't know if she's ever really like found her best role. 
She's perfectly fine in a lot of things. Well, She's it's, quite it's, good it's in Dream ob- Girls. But obviously like, obsessed. That's her best role. I think that's her best. Right, yeah. Might be her best movie. Yeah, it's, it's at least her most not. entertaining movie. Just watching her and Ali Larder kick the shit out yeah. of each other at the end of that movie is a real treat. <laughs> yeah, the, that movie's the, fun. The movie leading up to that actually isn't so. It's pretty, it's, pretty bad. Actually, you're just here to watch her throw somebody through a glass coffee it's table. Bas- it's basically, uh, you know, how Fatal Attraction is a really good movie. It's like we're gonna do not as good a version of Fatal Attraction, but we're gonna fix the ending. We're also gonna so, take all the sex. <laughs> So it's only rated PG thirteen. That was a big mistake, I think. I think it kind of hinders the the, yeah. the weight of the story because Idris Elba doesn't do anything bad in that movie. Yeah, he, he should, actually doesn't cheat. It's on not even life. tempted, really. It's weird. So um, it's one of those ones where mm. like he didn't like. It's weird when a character doesn't sin, mm. but is treated like they did. Yeah, and you're sort of like there's this is a weird disconnect with the film, and you're just like, I get it, but it's not really selling. Yeah. But in any case, uh, I, I feel I like this movie is actually no. a very striking artistic statement from her. And although it doesn't really, it, it's, there's no like conventional acting here. I think the performances and what she evokes mm. in the choreography, in the cinematography, in the incredible production design and costume design is highly affecting. I think I think it's too much of a muchness. I think mm. she's just sort of spilling out a lot of ideas. Uh just visually things are coming at you so fast and so quickly that nothing's really gelling uh, mm. in terms of like trying to construct a narrative in this concept record. It's kind of failing. They no. keep on dropping little bits of dialogue from the Lion King, but that's barely holding anything together. Some mm. songs are like various, uh, various genres that don't necessarily fit well together and uh, they're not all necessarily bangers. I, uh, well, uh, there's, I... there was one in the middle called Brown Skin Girl, which I thought was actually very moving. And the one mm-hmm. at the very end was really great. Oh, uh, the, I think it was, um, it's, not, it's called, it's just called power. My power, my power, yeah. my power is my power. Is uh, and I like so. that last one as well, but, uh, yeah, um, I, 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 okay. I think I like this one more than you. Um, I think these are all variations on an excellent theme. I agree that after a while, when they start playing the Lion King stuff, I'm like, I've moved past the Lion King. I don't need to be reminded of it anymore. Mm. Like I, I was fine with it as a launching pad for everything Beyonce is doing here. But after a while, yeah, I, we can just cut that part out. I think, mm. I think we're, the point has been made yeah. that we're taking some of the general ideas from the Lion King and we're actually going to steep it in, fact, in the it, culture that it probably yeah. should have been steeped in, in the first place. I, I think the connections to the Lion King are, are really the thing hindering it the most. I, it makes I, it seem a little bit more, and that I saw it on Disney plus yeah. makes it seem more like a soulless commercial exercise I, rather than like a, a pop star trying to explore something kind of meaningful. I don't know, man. I think the fact that Beyonce, it feels like Beyonce just sort of gamed Disney Plus. Like, mm. oh yeah, you want to do a you want to do a fun concept album about our movie? Mm. And Beyonce's like, yeah, I'm gonna make a movie about how the Lion King could have done a better job. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that part out loud. Mm. And they're just like, we weren't listening. <laughs> She's like, well, good. <laughs> yeah, I'll make this fucking movie. And I think she made. Here's here's I, my big critiques about this movie. Um, I, I agree every time it harkens back to the Lion King, especially after the beginning Hmm. is jarring at best. Um, I also think that, um, the way that the film is sort of flows and without like going scene by scene, I'd be hard pressed to describe this in great detail. Um, I find it um, hypnotic almost to a fault. Mm. Like I was really like absorbed in it and engaged by it. But then after a while I found myself kind of drifting 
in it rather than being actively engaged with, I think, this constant deluge of visual iconography mm-hmm. and ideas that Beyonce's throwing at me. And after a while, there were so many of those ideas that I couldn't process them all. Mm-hmm. And I started just sort of listening to the music for a bit and then I came back. Um, so I think that's more of a pacing issue than anything. Like yeah. maybe visually it should have slowed down at, for a little bit. And then pick well, back the, up yeah, again. It should have been a little bit more like a movie. Think of something like uh, like The Wall. Have you you've seen? I've it? actually never seen The Wall. Oh, um, I, I'm told it's quite video. good, but I've yeah. never been that high. <laughs> I've uh, never done acid. I've never seen The Wall. I've never done acid. I've never had pot, but uh, I love The Wall. Right. And uh, I was told wall, you need to be completely like, wasted when you see The Wall. Uh, no, you don't. Have to be well, that was what I was told. It's, and it's that's actually, why I never it's actually very striking and poetic, okay. but. Uh, what Alan Parker did with the wall was he actually put together like a movie mm-hmm. within the songs. So he actually like weaved a narrative throughout. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's no such narrative in black is gang. Yeah. There, she didn't, uh, she just sort of essentially made a bunch of music videos, yeah. which, you know, are striking and good, nice. And some of the tracks are really nice. And they, she came up with some really good music videos, yeah. but it's still just a string of music videos. I don't know. I feel like they're th- thematically mm. and visually connected in mm. such a way that I think they're very inspiring. I think they are uh, at times very challenging. I appreciated what she managed to take from, from the Lion King and spin off into her own statement. Mm. And I think that statement obviously has value. Uh, We can criticize the pacing of the film, whatever all we want, but I think what she is accomplishing here is really quite powerful. I I, Mm. I don't think it's her best album or anything. I think it's probably still probably lemonade, but are you a Beyonce fan? Somewhat, you know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest Beyonce Mm. fan, but I have an enormous respect for her, especially as uh, her musical career. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, so listen, this, again, this is my favorite thing she's ever done, but I do think that this is, at times, a genuinely beautiful sort of statement in and of itself, and I think some of the music is fantastic. Uh, some of the bits uh, from the movie are very, very striking and memorable. Um, so I do highly, I will, I do highly recommend this, mm. but um, it might be the kind of thing you might need to do in chunks, because it's just <laughs> a lot to absorb. Yeah, yeah. So... That's my ultimate takeaway from it. No, I, I I think it's quite good, and I do like some of the some of the music videos. Um, yeah. As a concept, I don't think it's fully successful. Yeah. Uh, but this is me as a, a a film critic who's judging this more as a film than yeah. as a sort of a concept record. It's also coming from somebody who's not a Beyonce fan. Yeah. Again, I don't I don't also, hate Beyonce. I'm I I'm just not familiar with Beyonce. And also, so this is kind of my introduction to Beyonce. And also, let's stress the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. We're white guys. Also, we're white guys. So, so yeah. like, we're, we're, we we don't have the the cultural background, maybe, mm. to appreciate this movie on every single level mm. uh, that it works. And I, un, I, you know, I, that that sucks. I, I wish I did, but um, I can appreciate what I got out of it, and I do think it's quite lovely. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Right. Well, we're going to move on now, uh, and then sadly. Because I've been busy doing a lot of stiff. Uh, you saw the other new releases this week, and uh, I missed all of them. Which one do you want to talk uh, about I, first? I saw three other movies. Uh, let me talk about The Fight. Yeah! Uh, the Fight. I love is, fight movies. Uh, okay, then you'll love this one, because this is about the ACLU. And, oh! And boy, howdy, are they fighting right now. They sure are. Uh, yeah, this is documentary uh, from uh, Eli Depre, Josh Kriegman, and Elise Steinberg, uh, and... 
Ever since Donald Trump was elected president, the ACLU has been in overdrive. Yeah. Uh, with uh, several hundred cases being brought against the Trump administration for violations of various constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to sort of streamline that, uh, they decide to focus on four cases, each one dealing with a different set of rights that's being violated. There's, so this is uh, all like current ACLU current cases. Current ACLU cases. Okay. So there was the Muslim ban. Uh, uh, yeah, the, immigra- was, the uh, uh, travel ban. The travel ban. Yeah. Uh, clearly a Muslim ban. Oh, no, so I'm just, was, there was a, just so yeah. we're clear, like that's that's the ban we're referring the, yeah, to here. The, the initial was, travel ban was, was the, one of the first yeah. things the administration did. Yeah, there was the travel ban. There was the case of uh, the young Mexican woman who came into America and was being denied a right to an abortion. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was the... Uh, Transmilitary ban, mm-hmm. uh, and oh gosh, what was the fourth one? The fact that we can't narrow it yeah. down is really <laughs> upsetting to me. It's like, oh, what was the other human rights violation? Uh, there was the case about the citizenship question. Ah, yeah. Uh, and, which is and, which is the uh, 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 should there be a question? The the administration wanted to take a U.S. citizenship question and put it on the census, uh, which uh, led to a lot of concerns that they would use this. Uh, to sort of find people who weren't U.S. citizens and kick them out of the country, which is being done kind of en masse. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a, uh, and the ACLU uh, is just we get to see them sort of at their headquarters, how put upon they are. We get mm-hmm. to follow the lawyers in these cases and what they're looking into and how they're studying and how hard they're working, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of the the price it pay the the toll it's taking on them. Uh, one of the lawyers said they were ready to retire, mm. and the night Donald Trump was elected, he realized he was never going to see his family again. Uh, yeah, the so, next four like, years yeah. are going to be, hopefully only four, are going to be mm. very busy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and uh, we get to sort of tour around the, the ACLU office, and we do really realize that uh, it is just a, a cadre of hardworking legal experts. Yeah. Not this gigantic, you know, network of people. Although it is pretty large, you know, they yeah. they're, they're really far reaching. They're, they're not but, working out of a closet somewhere. It's a big organization. But you know, they're but... they're not like this cadre of billionaires trying yeah. to fight the system or anything like that. Yeah. They're they're fighting for basic human rights. Yeah, and it's incredibly inspiring to watch the hard work they're doing for the causes they're fighting for. I actually didn't realize this mm. was out. I totally would have watched this, even mm. though I'm not generally a documentaries guy. Like yeah. I don't usually like ooh documentaries mm. like. There are documentaries I like, but they're not usually my favorite genre. And this like excites me to think about it because I think that's the kind of like nuts and bolts work and activism mm. that actually does change lives and change yeah. the world, mostly for the better, that we need to be sort of... Because I feel like there are a lot of people who look at the ACLU as a sort of amorphous entity. Yeah. Something bad happens, the ACLU drops a tweet. Mm. Or if you look at something like the God's Not Dead movies, where like, oh no, there's a controversy about whether God should be taught in schools, and then Ray Wise shows up as this guy from the ACLU as saying the villain, yeah. and he's like having conversations <laughs> about. Listen, we all know there's no problem here. We all know Melissa Joan Hart did nothing wrong, but we can use this as an excuse to kill God. Oh, and I'm like. That's not a thing. That's not what the ACLU does. In fact, it's so ridiculous. Uh, they, they don't focus on this, but they do bring up the fact that uh, after a Nazi rally, the ACLU came in as their defenders. Uh, because it was a freedom of speech it, issue. It, it was a freedom of speech yeah. issue. So they actually said, well, 
unpopular speech isn't something we agree with, but we have to fight for their right to say it because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, what are we standing for here? Yeah, and uh, I and I listen on a personal level, I take issue with that, mm-hmm. but that does kind of come part and parcel with mm-hmm. where we're coming from. But again, the issue is, you know we're examining our morality and ethics on a regular basis now because they're constantly being challenged, aren't they? Nobody ever wrote this down before. Oh, you're right, because we were decent and we didn't need to. We didn't think that was going to be a thing. (sighs) So yeah, this is a a, a direct aggressively political rebuttal of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, does, does it, how, does, also, how does it play, though? Is it, like, suspenseful? Uh, is it just informative? Is it Ken Burns? What's the vibe? It's, uh, well, it, it's about their hard work. That's okay. what we're looking at here. We're, we're focusing on just the a huge amount of work they have to do, and we're trying to humanize the people at the ACLU, give right. them a face, and understand that uh, this is... Sometimes a Sisyphusian effort, they realize they're fighting a machine that they can't win against, and sometimes they lose a couple cases. Yep. Uh, I'm, over the course of the film, we get to see them win and lose cases. Uh, the the uphold of the trans ban was particularly crushing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also, how sort of, how they have to take a lot of these horrors with good humor, and they're just sort mm-hmm. of... Oh, well, that's going to be hard work. <laughs> Let's get a bagel yeah. and just knuckle on there. Got to go back to the grindstone. Yeah. We thought we were it's done. Like, no. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> oh, shit. shit. <laughs> He's young, actually, too. They actually uh, like openly say, well, when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, it's like, well, we know our job's just going to be that much harder. We have to yeah. sort of... And, and we've learned recently that Brett Kavanaugh was like kicking the can down the road for a lot of these big cases. Yeah, he was just like, hey, instead of deciding this thing, what if we just didn't? Yeah. Apparently yeah. that was what was going on behind the scenes. And we're just like, great pick. That's great. I love that all this stuff is coming out now, but like things that we didn't really concern ourselves with the, or didn't have information people about. People didn't talk about what no. happened behind the scenes of the Supreme Court that much. Mm-hmm. That was not a thing for most of my life. Yeah, we're, we're really scrutinizing now because we're aware of like how much potential corruption there might be now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I love the, like everything about Brett, Brett Kavanaugh because Brett Kavanaugh is a shitbird. Uh, you love everything in the movie about Brett. About Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh. No, you don't. You just said I love everything about Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and I do not want that taken out of context. Sorry, everything <laughs> that they say in the movie about Brett Kavanaugh. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Is, is really great because how exasperated they all are. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's really an exhilarating documentary uh, mm-hmm. just to watch. And even if you don't align with the ACLU politically. Yeah. Uh, it's Which still, clearly we do, just in case you hadn't noticed. Yeah. But like, yeah, we acknowledge <laughs> I think, that. I think there's still something of value be, to be taken from this, uh, to understand that there is an entity out there that is fighting for basic human rights uh, on a human on a, a human level mm-hmm. against a government that may or may not be operating in our best interest. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, they've been doing that this entire time yeah, and every for, single for government decades even, and decades even the yeah. governments that you like hmm. have made bad decisions and pushed in bad directions and the aclu has been fighting that whole time and uh yeah i don't know every single thing about everything that they've done and i actually regret missing that documentary because i really would have loved to have seen hmm. the nuts and bolts of what goes on there so you're saying that it is not only informative but it is very engaging it's it's very engaging okay. it's very up to the moment uh and yeah i think it's very important i think that, that we we should understand exactly how big this fight is. Awesome. Tell me about Summerland. 
Summerland, I will. Uh, Please. Summer, Summerland is uh, it's the, the job winning. It's the latest film from Jessica, uh, director Jessica Swale. It's her first feature, although she is a veteran of theater. She's worked with actress uh, Gemma Arterton before, and any excuse to get Gemma Arterton in front of you is a good excuse. Gemma Arterton is uh, gonna go down. I think she's like the Oliver Platt of her generation, where she's like like one she's, of the greatest and yet somehow most underrated actresses. Nobody talks about how amazing Gemma Arterton is, and it's because she's constantly in really good movies but they're never just huge hits yeah go see their finest at some oh point oh my that is, god that's that, a really great movie. that's probably her magnum opus and not mm. only is she amazing in it it's fantastic it is about uh the people making like pro british propaganda yeah, movies pro yeah. british propaganda movies in world war ii and how difficult yeah. that was mm. and how you were constantly like working with like government control to try to make sure you don't see anything too negative but also we do need a hollywood star and, like, <laughs> and also he can't act so yeah. we have to teach him and like and also they're bombing the studio and like it's really it's, if you love movies you should definitely see it's it a pretty terrific film but even if just if you just love and I mean, if you love like the behind the scenes of movies, you should definitely see it. But if you just like movies at all, yeah. it's a really wonderful film. <laughs> People do not talk about yeah, it. Yeah, Gemma Arterton is the lead in that movie. But she's, she's great in everything. She's the lead here, too. And this is uh, another one that's set during World War II. And uh, when the children were being evacuated from the big cities, uh, they were being sort of t- just taken out to country homes. Although the Gemma Arterton character didn't volunteer, she's, uh has to now take care of like a, a 14-year-old boy. Mm. Uh, that she doesn't like because she is a cantankerous old author who throws sticks at people who walk by her house. How old uh, is she? she? I mean, she's Gemma Arterton. She's in her like mid. She's younger than me. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say she's cantankerous and old, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, she's just cantankerous. She's like four yeah. years younger than me. Yeah, she's Gemma Arterton's like 34, but. Yeah. Um, just she's a grump. Is okay, the that's she's, fine. Yeah. she's the grump that nobody wants to walk past, and she's trying to write a book about Summerland, which is essentially uh, it's explained several times throughout the movie, but it's like pagan heaven, oh, okay. like what heaven, what a lot of people refer to as heaven pre Christianity, right? Like uh, like druidic cults and sort and that sort of thing, and they she talks about a lot of Arthurian myth and all the rest to this young boy and. She's so involved in this that she's kind of a shooed human contact, and through flashbacks we learned why she's a shooed human contact, and it's because she was deeply in love, as we all are, with Gugu Mbatha Ra, and they were having a really lovely affair several years before, mm. and they really wanted to adopt children and have a family together, but they're both ladies, and that's not allowed at the time, and Gugu Mbatha Ra decides to... Uh, break things off and that's left her yeah. a, a bitter husk of a woman uh and so we get to sort of see flashbacks about how that worked out there are further plot complications there's some connections to other characters that, that were mentioned previously there's some uh, lies that are told and secrets that are held uh and it's all incredibly delightful i think what's really going on here is a really wonderful uh relationship between the director and her lead actress uh, and how well they seem to understand one another. You can kind of sense that in movies sometimes mm-hmm. when uh, an actor and a director are really just sort of vibing. Yeah, they're on the right uh, way. They, there's, the, uh, uh, Sidney Lumet talks about mm-hmm. this in a great book he wrote called Making Movies, where he said one of the most important things you can do in a movie while you're making it is mm-hmm. make sure everyone's making the same yeah. film. And, and sometimes you can tell they're not, but when they are... You're usually making something good. Uh, Jessica Swale has worked with Gemma Arterton on stage before, so mm-hmm. they've worked together well, a lot, and you get you get the sense that... Gemma Arterton knows exactly how to move this movie mm-hmm. along. She's in charge of every scene. She's in almost every scene. 
And it's just exhilarating to watch the two of them kind of work. Have you seen it, uh, uh, Jessica did, Swale's short film, Leading Lady Parts? No. Oh, this was this made the rounds a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, she did a film uh, with like a lot of like famous actors in it, including Gemma Arterton, and uh, I think it was it was uh, we had uh, Amelia Clark was in it, Lena Headey was in it, um, Catherine Tate was in it, and the whole thing is uh, a bunch of women auditioning for roles and being and killing it, but mm. then getting the feedback which is like can you smile more oh, can God. you lose weight yeah, yeah. can you gain weight can mm. you be more like a man like can you be more friendly can you be more like all of these really sexist mm. sort of suggestions right. that are portrayed as like some positive thing and at the end of the short Tom Hiddleston comes in and gets the part God, it's a really it's a really searing short film. Oh, guys, it, guys, if you're listening, women love it when you tell them to smile more. Oh, T- take take my word for uh, it. Uh, now, just, please, just, yeah. please, that's another one. Do not take that out of context. <laughs> that is massive could, sarcasm. Uh, I think you could hear the sarcasm. It's one of the reasons why the Purple Man is the greatest MCU villain. <laughs> the Purple Man? Oh yeah, from Jessica Jones, the the TV show. He's a oh, yeah. he's a villain who uh, can make people do whatever he tells them to do. Okay. And this makes him feel, you know, like godlike. And but he's also Just controlling a raging yeah. misogynist. And one of the things he does is he'll walk up to people and say, "You should smile more." Oh, and then people talk about like, and then I couldn't stop, and it was the most horrifying experience. <laughs> and like, move my face. Yeah, like it's he's a, a genuine monster. Like it's oh, really wow, fucking that... terrifying. So it's all based on that. Right. Yeah. But in any case, yeah, I, just, I finally recognize where right. I knew Jessica Swell from, right. and that's why. Uh, it, it drops a few narrative bombs that are, uh, you know, moving but cheap. Uh, that mm-hmm. in, in that movie, it's a of, melodrama. In that, in that, yeah, that melodramatic yeah. sort of way, and and it, it does wrap up a little too tidily, satisfyingly, but tidily. Yeah. Uh, so it's not as uh, as dynamic as something like Their Finest, but it has that same sort of warmth. And like I said, I, uh, Gemma Arterton is just knocking it out of the park. That's She's amazing. really wonderful. Oh, I wish I'd seen it. Mm. Damn my schedule! <laughs> Damn it to hell! Uh, and finally, another movie that I really wish I'd gotten to see, although perhaps for different reasons. Oh, no, no, you didn't wish you saw this Oh, one. you don't know me very well then, because <laughs> the next film is The Secret, mm. Dare to Dream. The Secret, colon, Dare to Dream. Uh, if you might recall, there was a book called The Secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when this book came out, and uh, there were big commercials online about how all of the greatest people in history knew the secret and if you know the secret and if you read this book you will also become the greatest human being in history and i'm like Uh, oh what is it and it turns out it's uh think positively it's it's this vaguely christian but uh, ultimately very secular uh power of positive thinking polemic based very much on like you know bullshit art authors like Norman Vincent Peale mm. uh, who uh, yeah taught the power of positive thinking and the idea is if you think about something enough it will simply manifest in your life yeah and not just about good feelings mm. or the right person in some sort of abstract way or, or like if I uh, really dedicate myself to solving this problem eventually I'll figure it out or, or, I'll, or I'll finally really, find uh, a job in the industry that I'm working for if I just stay positive and don't give up yeah. no, no it's, like, that, it's, it's like it's in a weirdly it's like, literal way it's like I I need a new pair of shoes and it will appear on the sidewalk in front of you someday I had some I was working at a bookstore mm. when The Secret was probably not when it just came out but it was still like super mega popular and everyone was talking about it and I had someone uh, come in and say, like, hey, I'm looking for, like, eight copies of The Secret because I'm giving away its gifts. 
And I'm like, oh, okay, let me let me uh, find that out for you. And I'm going to type it in, mm-hmm. tapity, tapity, tap, see how many copies we've got. And she's like, do you know the secret? And I'm like, yeah, if you think positive things, positive things happen. It's like, no, it goes beyond that. Like, Not if you think really. positively, if you think positively enough, you could win the lottery. And I'm like, I don't think that's specifically true. If, and she's if like, that were true, if that were more true, people would have won the you, lottery. You're telling me that, like, only, like, every time people play the lottery, only, like, two people think positively? And she's just like, yes. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Pretty sure almost everyone who buys a lottery ticket is in the is in a fit of optimism at the time. <laughs> Why else would you buy a lotto ticket? Well, uh, I guess you want to inject money back into the the state because that's where it goes, like the fun, like education stuff. Like yeah. I don't feel guilty when I buy a lottery yeah. ticket, but I only do it if I have spare money. <laughs> right. Like, <I'm> not. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the, the money you put into the lottery doesn't like overflow the school coffers like it's well, just they do have to pay it out i understand they, that. they pay it out but it's not like if more people buy lotto tickets schools are better funded they just the money goes into whatever the school limit is right and once it's full then they just save the money for the next quarter quarter or whatever it is i'm just saying there are uh, worse things okay. that there, there are worse frivolous things to spend on yeah uh but uh the Secret, colon, Dare to Dream, is directed by Andy Tennant, who directed a film in the 90s that a lot of people like and is not very good, but I like as well, called Ever After. Oh, uh, Ever After is sweet. Ever After is a great uh, slumber party movie. It, yeah, yeah it's, it, it is a good slumber party movie. Yeah. It's, it's it was, a, a Cinderella story with Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston. It's a bit more 90s, you know, it's a little bit more uh, like... A bit? Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's okay. it's, it's, it's a little affair vomited on the screen. <laughs> okay, you say that like it's a bad thing. That was the <laughs> selling point. It's a charming movie that reimagines Cinderella for a then-contemporary age. It's, think, it's it's a bit antiquated now. It was antiquated then, but it was cute. I think they played the Mummers Dance on the soundtrack. Oh, I don't even remember. Don't you remember no. the Mummers Dance? No. The, that Irish thing? Uh, anyway. Right, look, real fast, the career of Andy Tennant, because I think he's had a, a, an, an interesting career. Started off with It Takes Two. You know, not the parent trap. It was with, the, with the Olsen Twins. The Olsen Twins, and I think Gutenberg was in that one. Um then we had Fools mm. Rush In, which is about uh, Matthew Perry mm. uh, having like a one night stand with Salma Hayek, and then they have to get married. Boy, howdy, is it racist? It's not good. <laughs> and then he did Ever After, which is quite good. He did Anna and the King, which I saw when it came out, and like it was like, hey, I didn't, I never was, saw. Uh, Anna take, and the take, King. take, take the King and I take out all the songs, but it's Jodie Foster and Jayan Fat. It's good casting. Uh, then he did Sweet Home Alabama, which is that rom com with uh, Reese Witherspoon, where she goes home to Alabama, and it's sweet. Mm. She made Hitch, which is a giant comedy. hit. Hitch was huge. I never saw a Hitch. It's cute. I didn't see I like Fool's Hitch. Gold either, although I heard nothing but bad things about Fool's, Fool's Gold. Fool's Gold is one of those, like, Matthew McConaughey doesn't know what to do with his career movies where he was just like, I'm just going to have my shirt off and fall in love with someone who's blonde. Mm. Like, that was it for Matthew McConaughey for, like, five years. Kate, Kate Hudson was yeah. the blonde in that movie. Uh, and she, she, I think she worked him a couple of times. And Fool's Gold... It's fine. It's like a not very good kind of romancing the stone kind of thing mm-hmm. where she like falls in with like a treasure hunter or whatever. It's very watchable, but it's not very good. He did the bounty hunter, which sucks. <laughs> Gerard Butler is a bounty hunter and like his ex, I think it's his ex-wife, like accidentally like doesn't hit a court date. And so mm-hmm. now he's got to track her down and it gives an excuse to be terrible to her. And then he did a movie called Wild Oats, which I don't even think I heard about. <laughs> <laughs> You're just looking as it's got Shirley MacLaine, Jessica Lange, mm. Demi Moore, and Billy Connolly. Mm. How did I not hear about that? That's I, a great cast. I remember when it came out. Um, yeah, it's a, another 
Another film you watch with your mom. I uh, watch a lot of films with my mom. My mom has good taste in movies. And now he's done The Secret, Dare to Dream, and uh, as his filmography would dictate, it's corny as fuck. Uh... <laughs> Secret Dare to Dream is rated PG. It stars uh, Katie Holmes as a widow raising a couple children, and uh, her she's just put upon by life. She's in f- dire financial straits. Her home is falling apart. And who should flounce into her life but a flawless rescue stud? Yay! <laughs> Whitney, explain yeah. the genesis of flawless rescue stud. Flawless rescue stud is, uh, I guess you could call it the male equivalent of the manic pixie dream girl, but in there's a, a, a subset of romance, romance and romantic comedy films where a put-upon female lead meets a man who is unbelievably handsome, but not so handsome as to be, like, sexually uh, too interesting. Yeah. It's, like, sexually interesting, like, but not, like, but you overwhelmingly sexual. But you could get him. And he's not you too, and yeah, he's not too horny. He's, like, just yeah. horny enough. Yeah. Uh, he's incredibly good-looking. He's mm. got nice hair. And he's very talented. He can fix stuff. Yeah. With his hands. Or he'll give you a ride somewhere. He only exists to uh, sucker their angst and fix little physical things in their lives mm. To improve them. Yeah, to not be intimidating, yeah. but to be available. Yeah. Oftentimes in ways that feel incredibly contrived. Typically like we, they are widowers. Frequently widowers, which means that they're good on commitment, but very available. Uh, wounded, but uh, not so so wounded that they need to be fixed. The ultimate er example of this is um, Josh Dumal mm. in, uh, oh, what's that movie? The, oh... <laughs> that, What's that movie Nicholas with Julianne Sparks Huff? Movie. A Safe Haven. Safe Haven. Josh yeah. Dumal in Safe Haven is the ultimate flawless rescue stud. Uh, you, uh, my favorite subset of flawless rescue stud is every male character in the movie Home Again, except for Michael Sheen. <laughs> like just Reese, all these flawless. Reese rescue Witherspoon stuff. like just lets these like three young filmmakers like move into her fancy house, and they just immediately set about like building cupboards and like mm. t- telling her like you know their feelings, and it's just yeah. a weird fantasy the flawless rescue stud this time is bray and he's played by josh lucas uh okay all right so, one yeah. of the other josh dumals exactly well yeah. again josh lucas handsome man very handsome but not too handsome no, that he looks like him. a model like chris hemsworth would not play a flawless rescue stud he's no. too handsome no, no, no yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's a real catch chris, josh chris, lucas josh lucas you buy that maybe he hasn't dated in a while but yeah. he's obviously a catch but he comes into her life and, well, gosh darn it, he just wants to help her. And she's got problems with mm. her house. And he p- believes in the secret. Mm-hmm. He is the one who is going to bring the secret to Katie Holmes. The secret, this plays a lot like a Christian film, mm-hmm. but there's no explicit mention of Christ. There's like yeah. some church going talk. But it's about the idea that, you, I, I, or so I'm gathering, mm-hmm. that uh, your your life will not be complete until you accept some... Uh, uh, belief system into your life. Well, the, the secret is, is the so, sort of uh, using your brain to control fate. It's a lot more Scientology-ish when uh-huh. you think about it. Which so is sort weird of like that your, it has Katie Holmes in Yeah, it. your personal power. Yeah, Considering it's Katie a Holmes' odd. like weird relationship with the Church yeah, of Scientology but, and how, well, how much she went through to extricate herself yeah, from yeah, it. Yeah. Now, now she's doing this thing which seems to have a very similar 
psychology. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, in the secret, you mean. But yeah, Bray, at one point, he needs a bit to fix her roof, and he doesn't know what to do, and so he just sits and looks at a river, and wouldn't you know it, a hunk of roof floats by in the river, and he fishes it out and puts it on a roof. This is something that happens in the movie. <laughs> Someone made a joke about this movie, and I couldn't tell if it was actually from the movie, where, uh-huh. like... He's trying to explain how the secret works, and I guess she says something like, so if I just wanted a pizza, hmm. and then like a pizza guy arrives at their door, that's hmm. not in the movie, is that's it? That's also in the movie. They're, they're, they're not having very good food because their house is in kind of shambles, mm-hmm. and wouldn't you know it, they just get a pizza that somebody else paid for, just out of the goodness of his heart. So I guess the person who and paid they, for that pizza really didn't think positively about that pizza. The, the person who paid for that pizza was Jerry O'Connell, who is actually the ostensible love interest, but of course turns out to be the Baxter in this movie. Ah. The, the, the guy who uh, seems like he's just right, but he's a little bit too much of a dip that we want him to end up with Katie Holmes. We want Katie Holmes to end up with Josh Lucas. Oh, of course, because and, reasons. And of course, there's all kinds of plot contrivances about the dead husband and Josh Lucas's unexpected connection to him and how they invented something together. Oh, God. And how he keeps that secret from her and what's going to happen when it comes oh, out. Is that the real secret? <laughs> I have to watch the movie and find out. It turns out they just worked together. I really wished it had come out that they were lovers. (laughs) That Josh Lucas and the dead husband were boyfriends at one point. Uh, And he was was cheating on Katie Holmes with this dude. Or maybe they had... like. And then Katie Holmes' husband started that muggle war. And it was a whole thing. Or, you know, how, how fun if she was, like, bearding a famous dude. Ah. Allegedly. <laughs> no, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're gonna leave that in the podcast. Okay, it's not gonna get us in any trouble. Well, we're, we're just saying it's in a movie. Um, yeah. I don't know how true that is. Of course, it's, of course, it's not true. It's just one of those stupid Hollywood rumors. I know. Just, just so was, our asses covered. I was playing into a stupid Hollywood rumor. Every was, once in I, a while, I think it's important for people to know. They're like, eh, we know. Yeah. Um, it's uh. But okay, let, but let's okay. So clearly, the secret, it's, the secret dare to dream is like drowning in a vat of corn syrup. It okay, is awful, but. But mm. we've all fantasized about drowning in a vat of corn syrup. We all enjoy every once in a while something corny, right? Occasionally. If- okay, and if you're like so hard up oh. for corny, romance, positive thinking, whatever, someone come in and fix my life, please. I'm drowning here, mm. but not in corn syrup. Would this hit the spot, or would it not even I like work so. that it, level? It's it's a lot slicker than the the kind of films of this nature that are coming out recently on streaming services. Mm-hmm. You know, compare this to Falling in Love, and uh, <laughs> and you'll get a much better movie, film. Out I found of that movie like, slightly charming, actually. Uh, well, I guess this this one's slightly charming. <laughs> like a single sprinkle in a vat of mashed potatoes. I wish that's something you could put on Rotten Tomatoes. Slightly charming, but like sarcasm. Like there's a sarcasm, <laughs> like punctuation. Emoji. <laughs> just yeah. put an emoji in your review. Yeah, just put <laughs> eye roll. I'm like, that's the whole quote. I loved this movie. Eye roll, eye roll. <laughs> now, I feel like this is also a little bit dated. Uh, mm. Like Hollywood doesn't tend to make these kinds of sun-dappled romances too often anymore. Uh, they used I to mean, be, this was this was supposed there, to go was, to theaters. This was, was yeah. originally intended. I mean, I highly doubt anyone thought it was going to break the bank, but they clearly thought that there would be a market for this, and they could actually make some money with the theatrical market. I feel like from like the late '90s through the mid 2000s, there was a huge market for this kind of movie. Mm-hmm. From uh, 
Oh, well, Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, the Nicholas Sparks movement, essentially, yeah. is the kind of the thing that carried it along. You know, yeah. under, under the Tuscan Sun, those kinds of movies. Mm. Which wasn't and Nicholas then, Sparks, but it was that, that vibe. Was, was that a Nicholas Sparks? No, no, I'm saying no, I'm going to clarify yeah, it wasn't, but like it, Nicholas Sparks didn't exist in a vacuum, but mm. Nicholas Sparks kind of yeah. took over that whole thing, and it kind of became synonymous with Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, so this is yeah. like a... a Late stage Nicholas Sparks mixed with a secular Christian film, and it's just as insufferable as that sounds. <laughs> well, that's a shame. <laughs> uh, so the secret is out. Don't see it. Put right. that on your poster. All right. So let's review uh, uh, all of these movies uh, uh, officially. Uh, so at the end of every uh, session of reviews, we review our films on a scale. The critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. The lowest you can get is a C minus. It's below average. Mm. The averagest you can get is a C because it's average. Like maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't. It's kind of in the middle. C plus, above average, genuine recommendation, mm. maybe even amazing. So on that scale, I kind of see where you're going with this. <laughs> where do you put the secret the dark is rising? Uh, the secret the vampire's assistant is a C minus. Okay. I literally forgot the subtitle. (laughs) It was was the secret dare to dream. Great. I'm sure that's going to be a schmodown question someday. I'll have to remember that. So yeah, remember, remember the secret dare Dare to dream. dream. Like, Oh God, I just, I want to dream, but I don't dare. (laughs) Dare to dream. No, no, it's too dangerous. (laughs) All right. Let's, uh, Summerland. Summerland, uh, uh, C plus. It's not great, but it is, uh, solid. Very solid. And I, and I love Gemma Arterton. Okay. Uh, the fight, the fight. Also, C plus. Uh, uh, very, very salient, important, up to the minute, enjoyable. Okay. Human, humane movie. Uh, Black is King. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed this quite a lot. I think it's. I think Whitney had a point. It's like it's a lot. Mm. Like it's 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 got a it's it's muchness is very much, and it might be a little overwhelming. Uh, but I actually appreciate this absolute, just tidal wave of inspiration and great music. And commentary on what uh, a film that I think some people take for granted actually has to offer culturally and what it evokes. Mm. Uh, And I think Beyonce has expanded on that. And it is, at the very least, the second best Lion King movie. It goes (laughs) like maybe like Disney, the first Disney one and this pretty close. And then then all the other. Well, at least the remake. The remake's (laughs) way back there. Uh, I didn't like that remake. That's the only Lion King movie I've seen. So, okay. uh, so this is definitely the best Lion King you've seen. I suppose so. It's, <laughs> it's the best Lion King movie I've seen. I'll give it a high C. Okay. Uh, I, I think, um, again, as a film, I think there are some flimsy elements to it. Right. As a record, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's it's again, it's a big, giant music video, and that's kind of the form. And mm-hmm. so um, it kind of defies categorization or tra- conventional criticism in some ways, but I see your point. Uh, and then Host... Uh, host is incredibly of the moment, but not in such a way that you feel as though it's just a gimmick thrown together to capitalize financially on current events. It does mm. feel like it's a good ghost story. It's a scary ghost story. Part of me feels like bits of it could have been thought out a little bit better, but uh, it's very, very strong and quite spooky. So uh, I give it a big old C+. Plus. I give it a C plus as well. I really, yeah. really enjoyed it. I think it's really up to the minute. I think it's really salient. Say uh, salient again. Salient. Uh, <laughs> take a drink whenever, whenever I say salient. That's and a good one. Uh, also, and yeah, and also it's really scary. I think the the scares work pretty well. Uh, 
not not in spite of the low budget, but in some cases because of it. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, there's a lot of really spooky stuff, and it's just really, really immediate. Yeah. All right, so those are the, timely. Timely is the word I'm looking. So those for. are the new releases for the week, uh, and that brings us to the Critically Claped Streaming Club. Once again, this is where we take this opportunity, while there are fewer films in theaters, to enjoy the rest of what streaming has to offer. Because if you're only looking at the new releases on streaming, you're missing out on all of film a, history. A century of film history. Yeah, which yeah, not all of it is available on streaming, but you can still see a lot, and even uh, film critics professional film critics can find something on any streaming service. I was like, Oh, I never got around to that. Hmm. And, uh, this week, uh, I believe our themes was it, was it classic comedies on HBO max? Uh, yes. Yeah. Classic comedies on HBO max that one or both of us hadn't seen. And as chosen by our patrons at patreoncom slash critically acclaimed network, you happen to pick a film that neither of us had seen. And it is, I Married a Witch, made in 1942, directed by Renee Claire. Uh, the film stars Veronica Lake. Uh, she is a witch who has cursed the family line of the pilgrims who... Who, who, bur- who burned her and her father to death. Yeah, they've cursed them, and the curse is that they will be unhappy in marriage throughout history. No, and that's you, basically the, the vibe. And then you, in You 19- couldn't curse them to, like... You know, fits of vomiting or something yeah. like just really horrible. Uh, you, they, you always marry the wrong woman. It's it's going to be a but long. It's a long time. Uh, their ashes are buried under a tree, so their spirits can't get out. Yeah, and L- luckily, fast forward a couple hundred years. Yeah, nineteen forty-two, lightning hits that tree. The spirits emerge, and they decide to torment the latest in the generation. Veronica which, Lake plays the young witch. Frederick March plays uh, the, uh, the descendant mm. of the person who. Uh, accused her of being a witch and imprisoned her in there. But the gag is, whoops, she falls in love with him. And that's the basic gist of the story. Uh, they The spirits come out of the tree, and there's some really good special effects for 1942. I'm actually... Of watching some of the, like, the plumes of smoke mm-hmm. appear, like, it, it coming out of bottles or just floating outside of windows, mm-hmm. and they clearly just superimposed an effect, but it looks really convincing. I was actually struck, and I'd never seen this before, I was really struck by just how visual effects heavy this movie is, because this didn't have to be. Mm. This could have been just a cute little, you know, bewitched farce, where the couple of little, you know, magic gags and we'd be done with it. Renee Claire is going for broke here. He's throwing out all kinds of visual effects. We got wisps of smoke that alter reality and like jumping from bottle to bottle and things and like turn into human beings. And we've got, um, you know, big explosions and, uh, 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 you know, broomsticks that walk around on their own. It's not a lazy movie. It is actually an incredibly like inspired screwball comedy. I love the bit at the beginning where they establish the tone of the film. Here's here's what we're going to be doing. Okay, so we're going to. I think the opening title card is something like you know fourteen ninety eight or whatever. <laughs> uh, back when people still believed in witches. And then we go back and we see a bunch of pilgrims and they're like, and you see a smoldering heap where clearly they have already executed some witches. And there's a guy with a giant book of exorcisms saying this portentous is, things about witches. This is the Salem witch trials. That was the 1690s. You're off what? by two centuries. Look, it's all history. Okay. 
I didn't remember if it was specifically the Salem Witch Trials, yeah. but anyway, uh, people people have been unkind to people who've been accused of witches for a Quite long some time. Yeah. Um, but in any case, we've got this big guy and like the hat with a buckle on it because your hat wasn't tight enough. And uh, <laughs> why else do they have that? I am thankful my hat is wearing a belt. See, this way we only have all hats are one size fits all. If you got a buckle on it, just make them a little too big, tighten it up. Why else are they there? No one's ever explained that to me. <laughs> the Puritans, who we called the Pilgrims. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, um, anyway, I, I, I digress. They've just murdered some witches. Or so they've been accused. Hmm. And a guy's got a big tome, and he's like, Yes, for all witches are demons and must be destroyed. And he closes the book. There will now be a brief intermission. And a guy comes up, popped maize. Mm-hmm. We've got hot popped maize. And he's selling little bags of popcorn. And, and I, I was thrown for a second because I thought they were like shooting a movie. No, it turns out it's just anachronisms. So. Yeah, it turns out this is just going to be a very satirical look at the way that, mm. frankly, people have used witchcraft in some really sort of unsavory yeah. and and exploitative ways. Like, right off the bat, we're just saying, you know, all these people died and it was really, really horrible. And at the time, it was like, what else are we going to do on a Sunday? Like, they're actually, like, really cynical about to, the way yeah. witches have been treated in fiction. Hmm. I'm on board with it already. And in a weird way, I would love to see this as a double feature with The Seventh Seal. <laughs> Which also has, you know, a witch burning in that movie, but yeah. it's about a, somebody who has actually become convinced that they are a witch and they deserve to be burned at the stake. And oh the Crusade Knight says, no, we can save you. It's like, nope, I'm going to be burned. And it's all about the moral emptiness of humanity. I love the Seventh Seal. It's not, it sounds uh, almost like a Monty Python routine. Almost, but it's played for tragedy. I know. In that movie. Thin line sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I, I was... I was so delighted at how just screwy and slapstick this was because I w- didn't know what to expect. Um, yeah. I, 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 I hoped it would be funny, and, but and I didn't fact, know what to get. Uh, yeah. And I have to admit, this was my very first Rene Claire film. Right? I think it might have been mine, too. Yeah, Rene Claire uh, was known, uh, has a pretty extensive filmography going all the way back to the silent days mm-hmm. and uh, going all the way up through the 50s of just making various genre films, just a, a well-known, mm-hmm. uh, well-exercised mm-hmm polymath of a director uh if this is a good example of sort of the best of his work then great yeah because i need to see more renee wonderful. Claire stuff. this was the, this has such a, a pop and an energy and a wonderful pace mm-hmm. it's visually interesting and veronica lake is so wonderfully kind of detached not not sarcastic but uh-huh. just sort of uh above it all she's perfect in this that, i think she's incredible she, yeah, in this movie she just like infuses everything with such a wonderful charm veronica leg is a star that i don't think people talk about very much anymore because her 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 star was only like high in the hollywood firmament for about half a decade yeah there was about five years where she was the biggest thing she uh you know worked her way up from like little bit roles and like extra roles finally got a big break and she had a couple of hit movies couple of not-so-hit movies. Her best-known film is probably Sullivan's Travels, uh, which is a very good film directed by Preston Sturges about a filmmaker played by Joel McRae uh, who constantly makes big, broad Hollywood entertainments and he wants to do a real film about real suffering. Problem is, he doesn't know what real suffering is like and everyone tells him to stay in his lane. 
To which he says, no, I'm going to go undercover as a homeless person. And mm. I'm going to find out what it's really like, and then I'll make a movie about it. And Veronica Lake is the person who gets sort of dragged along on his adventure. It's a very sharp movie. Um, I kind of go back and forth about whether the ultimate theme of the movie is brilliant or maybe a little out of it, depending mm. on my mood. It shifts, <laughs> but I think that's a that's the mark of an interesting film. Um, uh, Sullivan's Travel's not a cynical film at all. It's actually very uplifting. I, I didn't say cynical. I just don't know if I buy it. Oh, okay. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a difference. I, th- mm. I think maybe it's a little too optimistic on my more cynical days. I think that's what I think about Sullivan's Travels. Um, but I actually haven't seen a lot of other Veronica Lake movies, and this is easily the the, the thing that, like, if I saw this, I would be like, I and I have and someone, she's a star. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, oh my god, she's fucking amazing. She plays uh, the young witch. Uh, she's emerges from from her ghostliness uh, with her father, and I like that they're not they're not truly evil. And that all they really care about is hatred and violence and suffering. But they're also they're not play- good. They're playful about their hatred and, and violence and suffering. Yeah. Like they they burn thing- a building down. Yeah. That's the first thing they do. It's just sort of like, because like, um, it's talking about like, oh, we're free. We're free at last. What should we do after we've finally been out of that tree? Well, I don't know. Why don't we burn down a cornfield? That always pisses some people off. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we can't find any cornfields. Well, something was bound to have changed. And so they just sort of look around for mischief they can cause. And when they find the descendant of the guy hmm. who, who killed them, uh, Veronica Lake says, oh, get me a body. I want to fuck with him. Like, yeah. I really just want to mess him up. He's getting married tomorrow and he's running for governor. Oh, let's get him. And so she decides to, she gets a body, and the only way to get a body is to, like, emerge from flames. So mm-hmm. Dad starts a fire at a hotel. <laughs> it's just fucked up. Um, the the, uh, the sad sack, played by uh, Frederick March, runs into the hotel because he hears someone, call, you know, in there. Uh-huh. And he gets in there, and Veronica Lake is there, and she's completely nude. And it's like, great, I'm going to die, and it's awkward. <laughs> Um, but uh, she just kind of refuses to let him go, and of course she scandalizes him. Like he's about to get married, and he's mm. about to be there's about to be an election for governor, yeah. and she's um, just completely getting in his way, and she's having a delight doing it. Uh, Veronica Lake was uh, known as like one of Hollywood's babes at the time, so she had a lot of sort of bombshell roles. And uh, what I appreciate about her in this movie, it's like okay, there's this titillating nude scene where she first appears and she says, "Like, oh, I'm a blonde now. Do you like me as a blonde?" And uh, she's playing with it. Mm-hmm. She there's she's completely in control of that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's completely at ease in that scene. Everybody else is really she's awkward. having fun with how scandalized everyone else exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she has not a whiff of the dits about her. And I'm no. thinking of other like famous. Movie bombshell, like the Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, who often and, played a character who yeah, was she, you know, she a little, very a little naive. Characters yeah. very frequently, uh, and a lot of people tried to scandalize Marilyn Monroe, saying, "Oh, she was like that in real life." And no, she was actually a very intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if this is, I've seen this. I've also seen this and Sullivan's Travels, and she's she's just in charge. She has so yeah. much charisma and presence, and uh, and and mischief power over mischievous power over everybody around she, she's her. the perfect casting for a witch like if you like someone who actually has supernatural power and can mm. lord it over people because she does but you don't dislike her for it mm. she's just totally herself and she's totally honest about what she's doing and what she's up front about it there's this amazing bit 
I love this bit. This is such a wonderful, delightful thing where um, he's rescued her and it's a big photo of, hey, he rescued that lady. Uh, but then she follows him home and it's all a scandal. And she's like in his bed, in his pajamas. How Veronica Lake got in my pajamas? I have no idea. Weird Groucho reference. Um, and she's, and he thinks, oh, I saved your life and you're a little infatuated with me. Well, you're very young and you don't know how it works. You see, true love is a, is a, a, a saga of of uh, great uh, uh, work and uh, uh, connection, and it really can't be forged in such a brief period of time. And as he's giving this big, long-winded speech, the camera pans over to a clock, and then the clock sort of speeds up until it's about 7 in the morning. Um, and then uh, we just pan back over, and they're, like, making moon eyes in bed. It's like, I've never loved anyone the way I love you, Veronica Lake. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Problem is... Uh, a, she is out to destroy him. Hmm. Uh, and uh, B, he's constantly distracted by his fiance and affairs of state. And um, for a minute, it looks like he might be able to like escape her clutches. So she develops, with the help of her father, a love potion. And then <laughs> the portrait of like his great-great-great-great-grandfather who killed her like falls on her. Like his ghost is trying to stop this from happening, and she gets knocked unconscious. And in order to revive her, he gives her a little bit of like what he thinks is water, but it's the love potion. And now she's actually in love with him. And, and the, she's like, "No, I love him so much! Damn it!" <laughs> and of course, the big wrinkle is when she falls in love, she starts losing her witchy powers. Yeah. Um, and there becomes a whole bit where uh, he's getting married that day, and she has to stop the wedding. Over and over and over again. At one time, she stops the wedding with the help of her father, who decides in order to get his revenge on this guy, he's gonna make it look like he killed him. It's like, it's just my body. I don't care. I'm a ghost. I'll just find another body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just lets the guy kill him. Shoot him, man. Yeah, shoots him. <laughs> just... It's so dark. It's so deliciously dark. I love it. I love, it's great. I, I love finding an old movie with gallows humor there was there was sarcasm in the past there, there, was. there was gallows humor in the past there was inappropriate jokes in the past mm -hmm. not and not inappropriate in like inappropriate by today's standards like they were making dirty jokes yeah, there's naughty jokes in yeah. this movie for in it, veiled by the production code sometime but it's a bit risque like you probably couldn't this would probably get a pg-13 as is now it's got a, it's for got naughtiness a, it's got a wink and a wickedness to it that i really yeah. appreciate people get this shot is, people are nude people yeah. are talking about sex it's a thing uh, i married a witch is the kind of film that i had i discovered it i would have watched it incessantly in over college over. uh you know there when you're in college that presumably at least if you're like me you are reaching around a little bit more in your film education yeah you're, and I was interested in film so maybe yeah. other people don't do this you but, want to, but you want to explore yeah, that's I part of film other, school is that they're supposed to show you these movies to expand your horizons I wasn't film school I was just in college well I'm just um, saying if you're in film school that's yeah, what they do exactly. you, have, they, you, so, it, you will be forced to expand your horizons at gunpoint if we have to so see like old I'm, movies I'm watching Dr. Strangelove for the first time and watching that incessantly I'm, I discovered Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers at that time and I'm watching some of those movies incessantly and this is one I wish had made it into the rotation. Yeah. It is so delightful and really accessible mm. uh, to uh, modern audiences. Uh, there's nothing stodgy about this movie. In fact, it's very, uh, very well greased, <laughs> for lack of a better term. No, it's it's a slick movie. Yeah. It's wonderfully well structured. It has a lot of like sort of surprising reversals. 
uh, that are very, very effective. It's got a great pedigree. Um, so the original novel was called The Passionate Witch, and it was written by Thorne Smith, who had also written Topper, which is also a supernatural sort of rom-com uh, uh, movie. Mm-hmm. I think the original had Cary Grant in it. Um, it was uncompleted, and it was completed by another author. I think he wrote like the first like two-thirds the screenplay, it's it's credited to Robert Parash and Mark Connolly, mm-hmm. but uh, both Preston Sturges and Dalton Trumbo worked on it. Dalton Trumbo, whose uh, name I think was taken off or was uncredited. Oh, I mean, they, they were both uncredited, but yeah. like they're they're they both like left. Their, Dalton Trumbo. Here's my understanding. Dalton Trumbo left. Dalton Trumbo, of course, uh, one of the great Hollywood blacklisted screenwriters, mm-hmm. and he would go on to write um, like Bridge on the River Kwai and Roman Holiday and Spartacus, even though he wasn't allowed to use his real name. Um, anyway, great writer, regardless. Uh, he was working on it, but he had creative differences with uh, Preston Sturgis. Preston Sturgis was working on it, but he had creative differences with Renee Claire. Okay. So there you go. A lot of creative differences going around. Um, so that's a great pedigree. Uh, I didn't know a lot about Veronica Lake's life and career until I saw this movie, and then I made it a point to sort of look around, see what I could find. She had a rough go of it, actually, and I'm very fascinated now with Veronica Lake's career, and I want to see more of her movies. Um, well, she she was maligned, but she also had a, a rather well documented drinking problem. Yep she uh, she she was an alcoholic, and it ended up I think dying of complications involving cirrhosis. Mm. So it was a it was a serious problem, but um, she was also I mean she had she was labeled, and I've hopefully we've all learned now to be very suspicious of this term difficult which i say mm. with huge air quotes that people didn't like working with her um which is hard to say if that actually meant there was anything actually wrong with her or just people had trouble with women mm. uh so who's to say here, here, here's to here's to blow the lid off that secret it was the second one it's almost yeah, yeah it's almost <laughs> certainly that and yeah. uh, people were very very rude to her frederick march was very very rude to her uh she didn't she didn't like that he was rude to her. Apparently she would prank him on set. There's several scenes in which he has to carry her, and at least some of those, she decided to put 40-pound weights in her coat. <laughs> so good for you. Um, but uh, she she was, she was hit her stride, and she was a big, big star, and then some things didn't go her way. And in fact, this is weird. Hmm. Veronica Lake's hairstyle, it's called the peekaboo, and it was kind of created by accident just during a photo shoot mm. um where she's got like her hair is just in such it's a way flip, that flip it's forward yeah. yeah flip forward and so like over one of her eyes she can't necessarily see you except maybe through the strands of her hair and it's a very striking hairstyle and after she emerged with that in her career it became a very popular hairstyle in the 1940s and apparently yeah. the united states government asked her to cut her hair because <laughs> this, story. this is weird, and I don't know how entirely how true this is, but this is the story. The United States government asked Veronica Lake to cut her hair because during World War II, more women were entering the workplace and her hairstyle was impractical. Okay. So she cut oh, her... So, and people are looking to her to... Yeah, to, to, to for, style for style hair, options. Yeah. And so, uh, and Veronica Lake apparently said, yeah, okay. And so she did, and it, it changed her image and it hurt her career. And, in fact, she actually, like, didn't even have a lot of roles after the 1940s. She ended up, like, you know, having, like, a uh, best-selling autobiography in which she was apparently very frank about everything that she had gone through. Um, And her last... Do you know what her last movie was? 
Uh, it was like in the seventies at some. It was a it? late. Yeah. It was late late sixties. Oh, hold on, I want to. I want because right. this has maybe the most fascinating uh, uh, plot summary of any movie I've ever seen. Veronica Lake produced and starred in her final screen performance, a movie that was released in nineteen seventy, shot in nineteen sixty seven, a horror movie called Flesh Feast. Oh, jeez. Okay. And here is the plot summary on Wikipedia of a movie that I am definitely going to see. <laughs> Dr. Elaine Frederick, played by Veronica Lake, okay. a mad scientist, is working on developing maggots that prefer human flesh, while her services are used to make a clone of Adolf Hitler. She cooperates with the plan to resurrect Hitler as a way of exacting revenge for the death of her mother, a political prisoner executed in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. While convincing everyone the flesh-eating maggots are for regeneration research, she simply wants to throw them in the resurrected Hitler's face, which she does. <laughs> now, that's a plot yeah. summary. Nazi revenge maggots. Like, say what, th that might not be marketable, but that leaps off the page. Mm. <laughs> and you're just like, what the f I don't know if that's good, but I I, I want to see it. I'm fascinated. That's <laughs> it's very high concept. Isn't that's, it? that's a hell of a fucking wow. Gee, like I had to just okay. sort of stare at the Wikipedia page for like two minutes after I read that. I'm like, is that is this? Am I being punked? Like is someone just trying to hack into the podcast? Um, in any case, she she had a rough go of it, but now that I've seen a couple of her movies as opposed to just one. Mm. Um, I really need to catch up with her whole career and I need to catch up with the career of Renee Claire because she's delightful. Frederick March is very capable and she, he's the person who gets befuddled a lot, which I usually don't think of when I think of Frederick March. Mm. He, he played a lot more like, you know, serious yeah, roles yeah, right. or, or, or conventional leading man type roles. So it's fun to see him in the awkward position. Um, it's got a lot of great supporting cast members. Robert Benchley is in this. Uh, if you don't know who Robert Benchley is, he is one of the great essayists, one of the great comic essayists of the 20th century. He was a theater critic who worked uh, uh, contemporaneously with Dorothy Parker, Alexander Wolcott, these wonderful wits who all lived in New York City. He was one of the Algonquins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they, and they all hung out at a hotel called the Algonquin. And they all hung out there so often that they actually brought in a special, like extra large sized round table for them all to eat at. And this was a big popular draw. It's like all of the smartest, funniest people in New York City are here all the time. Mm. And they're just saying witty things to one another. Have, have you visited the Algonquin Round Table? Yeah. I have. I, they don't actually have the original table out anymore. At least I didn't when I was there, which was kind of a bummer. But uh, yeah, it's a very, very nice hotel. Had a really nice drink. It was a real treat. It's one of my, one of the things I really savored the mm. last time I was in New York. Um I grew up hearing stories of the Algonquin Roundtable. My mother was a, something of an acolyte. Mm. And so I would read things like Alexander Wolcott's When Rome Burns, which is a book that in like 1950 was on like a bunch of lists of the greatest books of the 20th century. And by the end of the 20th century, it was on none of them, mm. uh, which is just because people stopped talking about it. But it's really wonderful. Uh, Dorothy Parker is, of course, one of the great uh, uh, wits and uh, poets and short story writers for a generation, invented many terms that we still use to this day. Um, but Robert Benchley was the one who was just sort of the, he, he developed like a sort of befuddled persona. <laughs> and he wrote a lot of like slice of life essays about like how hard it is to read a newspaper on a bus. And he's just hilarious in everything he did and through a series of shorts 
uh, that he wrote and starred in. Uh, he eventually worked his way on screen in some Hollywood movies, and here he plays uh, Frederick March's best friend. He gets a couple of funny lines, but it's actually not the best Robert Benchley role or anything, but he's a very, very funny man, and you should read some of his essays. He was one of those critics who, like, in the 30s, would write the most amazing theater criticism you've ever read and could close a movie in a single night. <laughs> like, if if anyone at the Algonquin Roundtable, Alexander Woolcott, Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, they, they could... Critics had power back then. Like, actual power. Like, people are like, oh, critics are just trying to destroy things. We can't control shit. <laughs> if we could control shit, First Cow would have been number one movie in America, and you know it. We have, do not have any power, but they did once. There was a time. It was a weird era. Wouldn't it be great if we could close movies? I don't know. Like, I don't want to close them. I don't. I don't want to do that. But I would like to be able to raise the, the visibility of movies. That that's that's a power I wish. I had. That's the power. Like listen, I we also, really think this is great. More people, please see this. And we do that in microcosm, like on Twitter. I, like I I'll, I'll mention yeah. something. Someone said, "Oh, what's that tonight?" I'm like, "Ooh, nice!" Like that's Don't when I feel like I'm really doing. Yeah. That's a great feeling, you know. Like, oh, and then they well, liked we, it, so that's awesome. But try as we might, we can't scare people away from cats. No, people were pretty scared away from. I think that's word of mouth true. actually kind of worked on cats. Yeah, so, some, so I guess sometimes it works if, yeah. if we get together, also, like as a unit. Also, nobody saw that trailer and thought, "Yay!" Like, <laughs> oh boy, a cats movie. Yeah, no one was into that. No one, no one, no one asked for that movie. No one, no one, no one took that movie. Um, but in any case, back back to the point at hand. I Married a Witch is delightful. It's really, really funny. The cast is phenomenal. Veronica Lake is like next level good in this, and it led to a whole bunch of imitators. There was a movie in the fifties, which I'm not sure if this one was a direct uh, connection or not, called Bell Book and Candle, uh, which I think had mm. Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. I haven't seen Bell Book and Candle. I haven't seen that one either. Um, but in the 19... I think it was the 60s that Bewitched debuted. Mm. Um, it became a hit television series. And the creator of Bewitched has openly admitted that they took the idea from I Married a Witch and Bell Book and Candle. Both oh, of which I... were stories about normal dudes who fall for mm. uh, uh, witches. And um, the, the, and the it was, premise of Bewitched yeah, by the it was way, Kim Novak and James Stewart. I was oh, right yeah. about that. Um, yeah, the premise of the TV series of Bewitched. It's about yeah about a witch who's living in modern day suburbia, and mm -hmm. she knows a few spells and can can manipulate things. But she's essentially trying to live as an ordinary housewife, mm -hmm. and uh, and her husband is not a, a witch or a wizard. He's just an ordinary boob yeah. who has to deal with her shenanigans. And yeah. he's well, really she's constantly trying to him. help him with her magic. Sometimes it goes mm -hmm. awry. Um, I always sympathize with like I said, like her aunt who was just like he's really holding you back, and I'm like he is. <laughs> yes, I guess you love him, but like he is played by Estelle Winwood. Yeah. Um, anyway, that became like a big thing, and I think you can track that influence uh, uh, ever forward. And I think if you remove "I Married a Witch" from the canon, mm. you probably wouldn't have gotten the Disney cult classic Hocus Pocus. To okay. the extent that when I looked up this movie on IMDb, I Married a Witch, the first picture in the photo gallery was of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> but yeah, Hocus Pocus is also about witches who were like burned at the stake and came back in the present day mm. and wreaked comedic mischief. Mm. It's not a rom-com, but otherwise it's you can, pretty clear inspiration. I heard they run amok. Have you not seen Hocus Pocus? I've not seen Hocus Pocus. That's cute. Yeah. I like it. It's there's, a good. It's a good yeah. Halloween slumber party watch. Where it's like oh, yeah. it's fun. There's a couple of spooky bits. I think. Ah, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Doug Jones. Doug Jones plays a zombie. 
Oh, okay. got some fun makeup effects and stuff, mm. and um, yeah, it's a really fun movie. Okay. Yeah. It's like a little a little too mature for like little kids, but not so much that you won't let them watch right. it. So like if they're watching, I'm like, hey, we're getting away with something. Like, I think it was in, I was in high school when I came out, yeah. so it was maybe a little too hip for a film aimed at a young, slightly younger audience at, at yeah. that point, and I just never bothered to go back. You're going to get around to it one of the mm. We should do like uh, maybe we'll, yeah. when, when we do the streaming club around Halloween, maybe we'll do there like is, yeah. spooky stuff on Disney Plus, and a, you can force them to watch Hocus Pocus. Well, a lot of uh, the, the kid flicks from that era just sort of passed me by. Sure. Like I didn't see The Sandlot or... Uh, <sighs> That's a good one. I think I saw. Did I see a kid in King Arthur's Court? Oh, with uh, Daniel Craig and Kate Winslet. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, they're both in that. <laughs> That's weird. Or Top Dog. Oh, that one doesn't. The, that one doesn't have a, cl- 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 a following at all. Also, that one's kind of weirdly not like kid friendly because you'd think like, oh, Chuck Norris befriends a dog. Mm. That's gonna be cool. What's it about? What are they? What are they gonna like? What sort of crimes are they going to solve? Is someone stealing all the bones? It's like, no, it's white supremacist bombers. Yeah. What? <laughs> That's the plot of the movie. What the <laughs> shit? That's a weird fucking movie. That's a weird mm. fucking movie you made. But uh, whether or not you like Hocus Pocus, uh, you should definitely watch I Married a Witch. Definitely. Because it is an utter delight. It is just yeah. frothy, fun, brief little jaunty comedy mm. where every element just works perfectly. Yeah, you just want to study it. Just mm. like the the level of like invention not just in like the screenplay but in the visuals this is not one of those comedies that sort of rests on their laurels and just say ah the actors will be funny like mm-hmm. no they thought out everything and they really just made it really inventive and, and clever and sweet and a little mean and it's super great yeah. and I'm really really glad I discovered it. so thank you to everyone on Patreon uh, who voted for this one I'm sure the other stuff uh, that was on the poll would have been good too but yeah. it really worked out this time and I'm super duper glad mm-hmm. uh, next time on the critically acclaimed streaming club because it's Whitney's birthday this week. Happy birthday, Whitney. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am quite old. Yeah, he is 32. <laughs> Aren't you funny? Yeah, he's a little older than that. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, I said, hey, take the whole poll. Whatever streaming service you want, whatever movies you want, and you pick the Criterion channel and mm-hmm. you picked a bunch of weird stuff. Well, films on the Criterion channel I have always meant to get around to, so this is the perfect excuse, isn't mm-hmm. it? And the winner... On that poll over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. I hope I'm getting this right. <clears throat> Symbiopsychotaxiplasm part one and part two and a half. Hmm. So two movies, really. But, yeah, uh, but they're pretty short. They're like an yeah. hour and a half. Um, so yeah, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm is... Which is uh, easily... I mean, I haven't seen it, but it's my understanding it's one of the better taxoplasms. So Name the, me a better taxoplasm. It's one of the better psychotaxoplasms. Um, okay, but taxoplasm, you think there's just more, there's more variety to work with? Uh, it is a, a ex- experimental documentary about new age thinking, uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm not sure how much more I can describe beyond. It's that. my understanding, and again, I haven't seen this one either. But based on the research mm-hmm. I was done, because I had to be able to describe it in the polls, who <laughs> knew what to uh-huh. what they were voting for. Uh, it is a documentary about the making of a documentary about the making of a movie. Yeah. Cool. And the follow-up is catching up with everybody like 30 years later. Uh, so I'm, I've heard a lot of good things about this. It's on the Criterion channel. Uh, I remember when it came out on the Criterion edition, a lot of people were talking about it. It sounded really interesting, but I never got around to it. So this will be an interesting watch, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, if you want to join in and watch it before next week's episode, you absolutely can. Uh, next week on Critically Acclaimed, we will also be reviewing the new releases, Work It, 
which is a new dance movie on Netflix. Yes. Uh, yes, the dance movie. Netflix neutral. <laughs> uh, and also, She Dies Tomorrow, a new horror movie directed by Amy Simetz. Uh, and that movie actually technically came out in drive-ins this week and the only reason we didn't review it this week is i really want to see this movie and i didn't have time this week and it comes out on vod next week so more people have an opportunity to see it next week mm. however whitney give people the gist yeah. of it because because uh, i saw it yeah just give people the gist and we'll go into more depth next week uh it is about a young woman who uh wakes up one day simply convinced for uh no real reason although it seemed it's filmed in such a way that you think it might be something supernatural, convinced that she's going to die the following day. Yeah. And uh, how her life changes, how her behavior changes, and how it also is an impulse that seems to be spreading to other people. Yeah, so everyone around her starts thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Sounds great. Hmm. Uh, I love the premise. I think Amy Simetz is a really wonderful actor. I like. I actually missed, I think she directed another film she, before, no. uh, which I haven't seen, but uh, I'm super excited about it. Uh, and I really want to talk, review it, so we'll talk about that next week. Um, and we'll review other stuff, too, because that's what we do here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around. This last week, we had sort of fewer podcasts than normal, which means, like, what? Like, only a dozen? Um, but uh, we actually we actually ran out of space in our podcast account because we've been putting out so many podcasts. So we're working on some tech issues they to find a way to sort of crunch those numbers and keep the the level up without having we, to run into that issue. We, we essentially ran out of minutes. Yeah, basically. There's there's only when you have a podcast at various services, um, you won't pay for so many like megabytes, basically that you can like transmit per month new. Mm. Um, and we have actually one of the upper tier ones, but uh, yeah, just ran out. <laughs> make a lot of podcasts uh so again we're, we're working on ways to fix that problem but uh hopefully it won't happen again so thank you everybody who stuck around and uh yeah you go over to our patreon we still kept putting out new content over on the patreon um we've still got all our yesterdays our star trek podcast reviewing every single episode of star trek we're approaching what may be the end of our Firefly uh, project out of gas. We've been doing every single episode of Firefly. Uh, we just recently did a comic book miniseries that bridged the gap between the series and the movie. We're just about to do the movie. And then we're going to be asking all of our patrons in a poll uh, what we're going to possibly replace that with. Because we could either keep doing the Firefly comics, which is pretty finite, or we might start doing a different show uh, for our $1 a month patrons uh, around uh, another television series so we got that going on as well uh, we've got not on disney plus where we talk about stuff that isn't on disney plus but probably should be we've got commentary tracks we are working our way through the evil dead series right now we just released commentary tracks for the evil dead one and evil dead two uh and of course polls aplenty we got other podcasts right here on the main network uh if you if you ever wanted to hear us talk, boy, it's now a good time for it. <laughs> There's so much of our voice out there. I know. God, why are you listening? But I'm grateful that you do. And thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you, everybody who subscribes. Thank you, everybody who leaves a review wherever you find this podcast. And, of course, a very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we literally wouldn't be here. Yeah. We could not could not afford it basically <laughs> it's that simple um so thank you to all of our patrons if you want to become a patron and get access to all that exclusive content patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network is the place to go uh you can also follow us on twitter at critic acclaim i am at william bibiani i'm at whitney seibold we have a critically acclaimed slash canceled too soon uh facebook page if you want to go join up there uh there's some discussion groups on there people talk about our latest shows and things um very grateful to everyone who is part of that community and that's probably it. That's about it. 
cool. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's all the stuff. So we'll be back next week with all those new movies or all those other podcasts and Patreon. And Twitter. <laughs> I never forget. Everyone's a great. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>